Cold but warming up Saturday morning, March 3rd, 2012. Dave Lefkowitz here with the radio program Dave's Gone By on uncradio.com, the radio station of the University of Northern Colorado. And what a, what a weird morning already. I mean, I, I drive my wife to school because so, she, she teaches on Saturday mornings here at uh, the university. Everything's fine. I drive her. I drop her off. I go back home to uh, get the last bits and pieces that I need to do this three-hour program that we do on Saturday mornings here. So I go home, and I'm loading stuff on my flash drive and my from iTunes and uh, printing out the papers that I need and getting all the basic info that would be helpful for doing this program. And then um, half hour later, I come back towards the radio station here on... Uh, 10th Avenue near 20th Street in Greeley, Colorado. And the first thing I see is sirens. Uh, well, um, not, not actual loud audio sirens, just the, um, the visual stuff. You know, the, the four different cop cars and one car up on this tow truck and another car near it and people on cell phones and these cops in green vests. And, and apparently there was this big fender bender boom <laughs> in the half hour, because I literally just been by this road, and I assume maybe it's cleaned up already. Probably they're still out there. I'll bet you. Uh, going through this big old traffic accident, so of course I'm going to scoot by, and I'm running late to get to the radio show because I, I always want to do. I, I like to settle back. I like to have a little time to plan my show, to get my paperwork done, to open all the the windows that I need on the computer, and then suddenly I've got to, like, turn away to to drive half a block so I can park far from the radio station so I'm not dealing with a traffic accident. I walk over, and I notice that one of our computers doesn't turn on. Um, And it's the computer that I need to do this program. Dave's gone by. And so now I'm, I'm, you know, pressing buttons and I'm looking around, and I notice for some insane reason the thing has been unplugged. (laughs) <laughs> so, you know, here I am, I'm plugging the thing in, and now God knows how long this computer has been off. might have been days. And now I'm waiting for Windows to reboot. And it's 9.48, and it's 9.51. And then, you know, Windows does all its updates and all its important PC stuff. And then it says, okay, hit Control, Alternate, Delete, delete to uh, restart the computer and log in. So I hit Control, Alternate, Delete, and then it starts shutting down. And now that's another three minutes, and it's 9.52, and 9.53, and 9.54, and, and I'm rebooting, and I'm re-logging, and I'm retyping in the password and, and the way to actually get on the computer. And so finally, finally, it's loading up, and it turns on. And now I've got to wait for all the programs to load up, because I need to have my iTunes up, and I need the uh, word processing, the, the MS Word, and I need the broadcaster, the SAM, 
we call it, which allows our stream to go through to the Internet so that you're able to listen to me now. Because up until then, I don't know how long we were offline. And, and you can actually hear what the hell people were doing at the station. So um, hopefully everything is okay now. But this is not what I need on a Saturday morning, ladies and gentlemen. I've had a long and difficult couple of weeks. We have issues with one of our dogs at home who needs surgery and not very pleasant surgery. I'm doing a show in New York in a week and a half, you know, that I'm, I need to rehearse more for, and I need to do all this invitations and mailings and things. Well, we'll be talking about that more in the program. It's called Shalom Dammit, and I'm doing it at the Richmond Shepherd Theater with my good friend Rabbi Saul Solomon and musical director Richard Shore, about whom more anon. But, I mean, I've got that going on. I'm dealing with taking a Spanish class at the university. God knows why I picked this semester to do that, because I'm going completely bonkers. What else? I mean... Isn't that enough? <laughs> and then, I mean, there's this more, and there's just constant stream of work that I have to do. So getting here is supposed to be my oasis. It's supposed to be my three hours to stretch back, play music that I love, get on the radio, get on the microphone, and yak, 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 have a little fun, take a phone call if they come in, interview some cool guests, talk about Broadway theater, Josh, and play a little with Rabbi Saul Solomon, that's, this is supposed to be the moment when I kind of calm down and mellow out and enjoy life a little bit. Well, as close as radio gets to life. And instead it's like, reboot, reboot, keyboard, no, wrong computer, no, not this screen. And, and trying to see if I can do something on the other computer. And having to, oh, oh, I don't need this, ladies and gentlemen. What I need is your time and your affection and your attention. As I do this radio program every Saturday morning from 10 until 1 in the afternoon, Mountain Time, on uncradio.com. Or, if you are listening in the dorms, because now you can listen, things seem to be working, put on Channel 3 on your dorm room television sets to hear Dave's Gone By live streaming. And, of course, if you go to davesgoneby.com, our website, then you can hear our archived programs, all virtually every program that we have ever done since we started doing this show nine and a half years ago, back in New York. Almost every program is at davesgoneby.org, free. You can stream, you can download to your iTunes or your hard drive, or you can just stream it right on your computer, either way. And, uh, yeah, you get to, to listen to stuff like this from years ago and from recently as well. But, no, I mean, it's a great show. I'm Some of the guests that we've been having... Over the past couple of months, I mean, Carol Channing and Bonnie Franklin and, let's see, Marty Allen, the comedian, Gilbert Gottfried, Judy Collins. It's been an incredible run of people, and we have some really cool guests here um, this afternoon. Although I do have to apologize to you guys, really not me apologizing, but, but for last week. Not that last week wasn't a wonderful show. We had a terrific time. But one of our guests never really coincided time-wise to call in. We were supposed to have Chris Broderick, the lead guitarist for Megadeth, for the past three or four years, uh, since the last two albums. And seems like a nice dude, and his tour manager guy seems like a nice dude too. But they just didn't get the idea that I do a radio show with a finite 
amount of time here. I get three hours on Saturday morning. Sometimes I go a little over. That's it. That's what I get. So when we agreed that he would try and call in last Saturday from the road, wherever he was playing, because I think they were just in town doing a concert. That's why we were having him on. Um, you know, he was going to call in during the show. And then I get a message from the tour manager that the, um, the call has been, what was it, pushed back. He doesn't explain. He doesn't give me a, a, another number to reach, and, and we're playing telephone tag. So I don't know what the hell it meant. I don't know if it pushed back. Well, he was supposed to call about 1 o'clock, which meant I was going to expand the show, keep it going a little bit longer, just so I could have him on and do the interview. But does pushback mean, well, wait, does that mean he's calling earlier? Okay, fine, 12.30, perfect. But he doesn't call in, so I'm stalling for time. 1 o'clock rolls by, one ten rolls by, so now I'm thinking, okay, he's pushed back, he probably has another interview, and he'll call by like a quarter after one one twenty. This happens to me all the time when I have to interview people, not, not so much for this show, but I write articles for some magazines on Long Island, and sometimes I'll do an interview with a pretty famous person by phone, and I'll get a call from their assistant like five minutes before the interview goes on, and they'll say, oh, uh, she's running late, and um, she's going to be about 15 minutes. Can she call you at 1.15 instead of 1? And it's generally fine. But this, this was just so vague. It's like, the interview has been pushed back. Sorry. And didn't know what that even meant. So I'm waiting, I'm waiting, I'm playing Megadeth music, and I'm playing Nevermore music, and I'm like, ah, killing time until literally a quarter to two. At which point I say, you know what, what the hell? I quit, I don't care. You know, he missed his shot. It would have been nice, we would have had him on the radio for the students who dig heavy metal and, and hard metal and Megadeth and Nevermore and Jack Panzer and whatever other bands this guy was in. And so it didn't happen. I'm like, you know, I was pissed off and that was it. And then I'm over the week I'm emailing and talking to the tour manager guy. I'm like, what the hell happened? He's like, well, he called in at four o'clock in the afternoon. And of course, you know, sometimes on Saturdays we don't have live people here for a good part of the day. It would have been funny. I, w- I was joshing with this with our general manager, Sam Wood, and saying, wouldn't it have been amazing if some like 19-year-old student at the radio station had their regular show on Saturday afternoon and suddenly they get a phone call from a guy saying, hi, this is Chris Broderick from Megadeth. And A, especially if they knew who it was, that would be the coolest thing imaginable. Or if they go, oh, yeah, right, who is this? Charlie, is this you? Are you picking up chicken tonight? You know, I don't know. Anyway, it didn't happen, but Chris Broderick did try. He did actually call in to the station. It was just like three hours later than my show. And I tried with a tour manager to reschedule and to get him on this particular Saturday. Just couldn't make it happen time-wise. So, no hard feelings, but a bit of a disappointment. Sorry to all of you who were really hoping to hear that interview. I do apologize. We did try. It was just mutual mass miscommunication in, funny how even in 2012, with every aspect of our lives being able to somehow be in contact with each other, from cell phones to smartphones to iPhones to apps to droids to email to Twitter to... I mean, any possible way. You should be able to reach anybody at any minute. And yet, (laughs) things can still get completely bollocksed up. So, it didn't happen. It won't happen. Maybe when Megadeth uh, comes back to Colorado at some point, we will try again. But... 
this is all preface to saying we have wonderful guests this particular episode, number 378 of Dave's Gone By. This is why I'm excited. This is why I spent the first 15 minutes, 20 minutes that I got here at the station running around from computer to computer making sure everything hopefully was working so that I could talk to Michael Seth Starr, who is the author of a biography of the late comedian Red Fox. Now, you probably know, I mean, I realize a lot of the listeners at UNC are, are young, so they may not know immediately who that is, which astonishes me. But, I mean, the show, Sanford and Son, remains in perpetual rerun hood. And you know what? It's, it's almost funnier now than it was back in the 70s. I'm, I'm kind of surprised at how well that show has held up uh, on a, you know, a given episode basis. And so Red Fox, man, died well over a decade ago, probably two decades ago at this point. Important fella in comedy. And probably more important than we realize, because everybody says, oh, well, Richard Pryor and George Carlin and Lenny Bruce were like this major troika of kicking open the doors of comedy. But Fox was there, man, 10, 15 years earlier, doing it in a different way, in a, in a more underground Sobrosa way. And also, fascinating man, fascinating career, fascinating young life for Red Fox. Not like he just was some actor and uh, lucked out in getting a TV role. I mean, he had quite a life. So we'll be talking to the author of Black and Blue, a recent biography of Red Fox. His name is Michael Seth Starr. I'm very excited to talk to him. And, and the book, I, I've, I've been so busy, I've barely been able to read more than a couple of chapters, but what I've read I've liked very, very much and hope to get to read the, the rest of the book soon. We'll also be talking rather... Uh, a last-minute booking on this, but very understandable, with a fellow named Eric Lefkowitz. No relation. <laughs> I think he's going to be like the eighth Lefkowitz that we have had on this program. I mean, uh, relatives of mine, of course. And then there's a monologist. Uh, I think his name was Mark Lefkowitz, who is maybe, maybe a very distant cousin, very far removed, but as far as we know, absolutely no relation. And here we have a different... Lefkowitz, Eric, he spells his name differently from me, spells it with a C, but I'm not just talking to him because he has my somewhat unusual last name. No, it's because he's written a book about the monkeys, the underrated but still kind of beloved pop rock band of the 1960s and and 70s that, um, well, suffered a big and and really unexpected loss this week with the death of Davy Jones. And so, in honor of Davy Jones and the music that he made and that that really cool group, we'll not only play some Davy Jones and Monkeys music, but we'll also be talking to a biographer of them, Eric Lefkowitz, who wrote, I might as well tell you the actual names, oh, name of the book, where is it? It's called... The Monkey's Tale, which in reprint, I think, was renamed Monkey Business. So it's still out there. I think you can get it on Amazon and the usual places. We'll be talking to him about the monkeys and Davy Jones later on Dave's Gone By. We'll also have our Saturday segue, in which we'll be playing monkey music. We'll go inside Broadway for news of the Rialto on Broadway and uh, even here in Colorado. We'll have um, our Bob Dylan segment, Bob Dylan Sooner and Later, with our uh, theme 
for the Dylan set being Monkeys and Mr. Jones, of course, in honor. And if that weren't enough for a jam-packed program live in the studio, Rabbi Saul Solomon who I mentioned before, Rabbi Saul Solomon will be chatting with Richard Shore. Now, Richard Shore is um, a musical director here at the University of Northern Colorado. Uh, Sometimes you'll see him playing piano to accompany the musicals that they do at the Norton Theater. Sometimes um, he's generally the musical guy that they're using in rehearsals. Like for the past couple of weeks, they've been rehearsing Ragtime, which just opened at the Langworthy Theater here at UNC. Well, Richard was very often the musical accompanying pianist for those rehearsals. Well, anyway, Richard is going to New York during spring break, to be the pianist, the onstage accompanist and musical director for Shalom Dammit, an evening with Rabbi Saul Solomon. They're the two guys on stage. And so, so exciting to have here soon in the studio, about 11 o'clock, it will be, I believe. Um, Yes, Richard Shore talking with Rabbi Saul Solomon in the neighborhood. It should be wonderful and amazing. I better make sure that the mics all work here, considering everything that's been going wrong here this Saturday morning. But before we get to Richard Shore, before we get to Eric Lefkowitz, before we get to Michael Seth Starr and Inside Broadway and all the other wonderful stuff we're going to be doing on this episode of Dave's Gone By, let's pay tribute. Uh, we'll play some more later, but let's, let's do a little bit of a Saturday segue for the late Davy Jones and the monkeys. Good morning. It's Saturday, March 3rd, 2012. Let's be daydream believers. What number is this, Jim? 7A. Okay, no, I mean, don't get excited, man. It's because I'm short, I know. Oh, I could hide beneath the wings of the bluebird as she sings. The sick clock along would never ring Put it ring and I rise Wipe the sleep out of my eyes My shaven razor's cold and it stings Now you know how happy I can be Oh, and our good time starts and then Without our love want to spend But how much, baby, do we
Couple of monkey songs there in honor of the late Davy Jones here on Dave's Gone By on this Saturday, March 3rd, 2012. Of course, we heard Daydream Believer. That was uh, Valerie. And in between, we heard, can you tell that, was a, that that was a Harry Nilsson song, Cuddly Toy? Didn't even remember that one. Probably haven't seen that in 35 years since I used to watch the Monkeys TV show. And then, you know, scrolling through Google and, and all the stories about Davy Jones and the Monkeys, and then coming across that clip um, of, of that song on YouTube and thinking, oh, that's a really cool song, and then learning that uh, it was Harry Nielsen. And if you go on YouTube, you can actually find a really nice demo of Nielsen doing that song on just a, a plain guitar. And it's also it's a much darker, sadder song than when, when he does it than when the Monkeys do, but it's still a very, very catchy number. Anyway, we're here. In the neighborhood at 10.32 this morning to do Dave's Gong by log of guests, log of stuff to do on this episode of the show. But first things first, I want to get to our very first guest. He's on the telephone with us, and he's going to talk about the late, great comedian Red Fox, who, of course, we all know from Sanford and Son, or maybe your parents and grandparents kind of remember him from the party records that he used to do. One of the most influential comics, um, really, of all time of the modern era, even though he's probably not mentioned in the same breath, as I said, as George Carlin or Richard Pryor or Lenny Bruce, and yet he made inroads into the subject matter and the way that comedy is mass-distributed in a way that those guys didn't even do, or, or at least he paved the way for them to do what they did. And so to talk about Michael Seth Star, uh, excuse me, to talk about Red Fox is the author of the book Black and Blue, the uh, Red Fox story, Michael Starr. He's on the telephone with us. Michael, can you hear me, and can I hear you? Uh, yeah, Dave, I can hear you. Oh, fantastic. Um, yeah, you sound great, great. Good, okay. Um, well, welcome to the neighborhood. 
Thank you. So, um, you wrote the Red Fox story, I guess, uh, well, it just came out last year. How long did it take you to put the book together? Uh, it took about three years, um, and it was time to come out well, <clears throat> to coincide with the 20th anniversary of, of Red's death. Um, he died in, in October of 1991 on the set of his, his newest show at that time, which was a CBS sitcom called The Royal Family. And it was good timing, too, because then this past January, a couple of months back, was the 40th anniversary of Sanford and Son, which, you know, which, of course, as you mentioned in your intro, Red is, is best known for. So it took about three years, and I really learned a lot about Red. I mean, I knew some stuff about him going in, but I, I really learned some, some surprising uh, factoids about Red Fox. And, and as you mentioned, he really was extremely influential on, on a whole generation of, of stand-up comedians, Although I would agree with you, you know, his name is usually not mentioned in the same breath as Carlin or, or Richard Pryor or Eddie Murphy or any or even Bill Cosby, but he really did influence all all of uh, all of those performers. Well, I'm kind of wondering, were you commissioned to do the book, or was it your idea, like, okay, I want to do another biography, and Red Fox just kind of called out to you? Um, it was it was a combination of both. I had I had actually had first approached a publisher about this idea um, over ten years ago. And I got the okay, but a long, boring story was just, you know, a business decision was made that they didn't want to do the book. So in the meantime, I wrote a couple of, the, a couple of other books, but I always had Red Fox in the back of my mind. And um, I had done a biography of Raymond Burr, which came out in 2008, mm-hmm. and the publisher liked that book. So, you know, they, they came back to me and said, well, you know, we know you really want to do Red Fox, so, you know, why don't, why don't we go ahead? And um, as I mentioned, the, the, the timing was great. Uh, for to tie it into Red, the 20th anniversary of Red's death and the uh, premiere of Sanford and Son in, in 1972. So it all worked out, and it was a, it was a fun book to research. It was a fun book to write, and um, you know, Red was a he he, <laughs> he certainly was an individualist, and certainly there was uh, he stuck to his gun throughout his entire career, and there was just so much ground to cover from. His beginnings, you know, he wanted to be uh, a singer in the, in the beginning of his career. When, when that didn't work out, he turned to stand-up comedy and relationships with, with Malcolm X when he was known as Malcolm Little in Harlem in the 1940s. Those two were, Red was very good friends with him. And as you mentioned in your intro, the party records and breaking through in the clubs in a big way in the 1960s, all leading eventually to Sanford and Son in 1972. And then after that, a good run on that and sort of his downfall. In, in the years after Sanford's son, after he left the show. Well, well, okay. Let's let's even roll it back a little bit because um, I've, I've been even I've been certainly enjoying the book or the beginning of the book that I've had the time to read. I think you, you, so far it seems like you're doing a really wonderful job. One of the things I wanted to uh, compliment you on is you. like there's a section where he and his group. They, what was it? Something wigs. Kenny Wiggs and the Wiggs, um, what was the band that he was... Oh, well, that, yeah, that was in, um, in, in 1946. Red had, had, was trying to launch a, a musical career. He wanted to be a singer. So he put out six R&B sides on a, on a label called Savoy Records, which was a pretty big jazz label located um, here on the East Coast in, in Newark, New Jersey. And he was good enough to pass an audition, and he did cut six sides with a guy named, um, uh, the backing band was, was Kenny Watson. I think it was his Brooklyn Buddies, I, Brooklyn Six, I think, as you mentioned. Ah, okay, yeah. Um, the Savoy did publicize, you know, the records, and, you know, they're, they're, I, I have photos of, you know, the, the ads that they took out in Billboard magazine and everything, and, 
they didn't sell. You know, Red was not, uh, singing was not his forte. He, he didn't have a terrible voice. It wasn't the kind of voice that everybody, everybody today remembers him for, you know, that gravelly, gruff cigarette voice that he had uh, later on in his life when he hit it big on Sanford and Son. In the early days, I mean, this was when he was 23, 24 years old. He had a pretty, pretty melodious sounding voice, but it was a tough business and he, he, he couldn't make it as a singer, so he, Serendipity led him to a comedy club in um, Baltimore called Gamby's. Mm-hmm. And from then on, he discovered he had a knack for telling jokes and, and interplay with the audience and shouting down hecklers. And he really started to forge his comedy career. And, you know, the, the, the rest, uh, as they say, Dave, is, is history. One thing led to another. And Right. Well, actually, you know, let's, let's stick on the very early history because, you know, thanks to some of the wonderful world of Google and YouTube, I was able to track down... Um, one of Red Fox's early records, one of the numbers that he did on those old 78s. So um, I do want to play it. It's called Lucky Guy, and I don't know if I'll get a chance to play the whole thing, but let's give a listen, if you don't mind, to uh, hearing what Red Fox sounded like, although he was already using the name Red Fox at this point. Yes, he was. He had already he had already switched over several years before uh, from his birth name, which was John Sanford. He had changed his name to Red Fox, so they, that that is the name he recorded under. So let, let's hear a little bit of Lucky Guy, and then we'll have more with Michael Starr, the author of Black and Blue: The Red Fox Story. <laughs> My baby's got bad keys, bad feet, can't eat or wear no shoes. My baby can't wear shoes cause it hurts her feet to walk. My baby can't wear shoes cause it hurts her feet to walk. Got teeth so bad it hurts her face to talk. Without a whole lot of talk I know we'll never fight. Without a whole lot of talk, I know we'll never fight. If she can't wear shoes, she'll stay home every night. Red Fox, Kenny Wig, and the band. Kenny Wigs, I should say. Lucky guy, going way, way back to the 78 era. And you can, I mean, if you didn't tell me that was Red Fox, I would have no clue. I was just thinking he was a journeyman, kind of, you know, hep, jive, blues sort of singer. But I also wanted to talk to uh, Michael Starr about still those early years. Uh, you you kind of just let it go as an aside there that he ran for a while with Malcolm X. And they, they were very, very close friends. So can you tell us they a little were. bit uh, about Red, that? Uh, had, had moved to, he, he was still known as John Sanford at that time, had, had uh, made his way to Harlem. In, in the late 30s, early 40s, and he got a job at a, uh, as a dishwasher at a restaurant called Jimmy's Chicken Shack, which was a very well-known place in those days. It was a big hangout for African-American entertainers passing through town. And it was there that he met a uh, fellow uh, who was a waiter there, a guy named Malcolm Little. 
and they became very, very good friends. They had a whole bunch of schemes, money-making schemes. They chased women together, smoked some, you know, smoked some pot, dealt some pot. Uh, were very close, and Malcolm Little later became uh, Malcolm X. But the interesting thing, um, and I heard you mention this in another interview, was that they kind of stopped running running together because Malcolm X were, was getting to, excuse me, I can't talk this morning, was getting into some heavier criminal activity than Red was. <laughs> Red was Yeah, I mean, it, it eventually, uh, Malcolm Little, later being Malcolm X, eventually did serve some time in, in prison. And I think it was a combination of that, a combination of he was already at that point, Malcolm Little was... Um, sort of getting more into uh, politics and, and uh, you know, the sort of thing that would get make him very, very famous later on, whereas Red just wanted to have a good time, wanted to be funny, you know, just wanted to chase girls. And, and so they sort of, when, when World War II broke out, they, they sort of parted ways. And they didn't really keep in touch after that. There is a photo in the book uh, from the early 60s when Red did go to meet to, to visit then Malcolm X in, in Harlem in the, in the 60s in a restaurant um, just to stop by to say hello because Red was performing in Harlem at that time. Uh, and, you know, Red was, after Malcolm X was assassinated, several, you know, several members of the press reached out to Red to get his reaction and that kind of thing. But after the Harlem years, they, they didn't really keep in touch, and Red was busy with his career, and, and Malcolm Little was serving time in prison, and he was busy with his career. So their paths never really intertwined after that. But they did they did spend two or three years in Harlem as very, very close friends and as a matter of fact they were they had nicknames. Um, Malcolm Little was known as Detroit Red and John Sanford at that time was known as Chicago Red because uh, he had grown up in Chicago and uh, Malcolm Little had grown up in Detroit and the, the name Red was because of their complexions. They had very sort of copper type complexions. Uh, Red Fox had some American Indian but his, on his mother's side, some Native American blood, so his complexion was, was a little copper in color. And they had the same sort of ginger-colored hair, so they both, got, uh, they both, they both were nicknamed uh, Chicago Red and Detroit Red to sort of separate them to people who didn't know them too well. Actually, one of the things that, that's interesting in, in starting to read the book also is that if you watch the TV show Sanford and Son, it seems like a lot of the names of the characters were taken from, you know, uh, Red Fox's real family life. I mean, Sanford was his real name. You know? That's right. He, has a, he had a brother named Fred Sanford, who right. uh, Red idolized, and who passed away in the mid-60s. He was sort of a very troubled soul who was never quite found his way in life, was in and out of prison, was a terrific athlete, but actually had a tryout once with the Chicago White Sox, but at that time baseball wasn't yet integrated, so that, that, that didn't go anywhere. But yeah, uh, so when they made when NBC made uh, Sanford and Son, which they borrowed from a British BBC comedy called Steptoe and Son, Red said, well, you know, why don't we just call it Sanford, and let's call my character Fred Sanford in, in, in honor of his brother. And uh, his son, uh, Lamont, was... Um, uh, named after uh, a friend, and and um, the character of Grady, who was played by Whitman Mayo. Mm-hmm. Actually, uh, Lamont was played by a guy named... Um, oh, my gosh. Why am I blanking on his name? He's a preacher now. Uh, DeMond Wilson. DeMond Wilson, right, yeah. And his real name is Grady DeMond Wilson, so they used Grady as the character for Whitman Mayo's character. And uh, there were several other characters. Um, Lamont was named after one of Red's childhood friends named Lamont Owsley, who he had grown up with in Chicago. Uh-huh. 
and uh, there was a Reverend Trimble who was named after one of Red's friends named Steve Trimble, who he was in a band with when he was in high school. Uh, and also one of Red's, uh, this, this wasn't a character named after anybody in particular, but one of the, the, the primary actress on Sanford's Son was LaWanda Page, who played Ann Esther. Sure. And she and, she and Red had grown up, uh, they went to the same elementary school in St. Louis, which is where Red was born. So he had known her all his life, and he actually got her the job on Sanford's and she, like Red, had toured the, the Chitlin circuit, which was the segregated um, stand-up comedy circuit and, and variety circuit, and had no, absolutely no TV experience. And, and Red had her flown in to, uh, to Los Angeles from St. Louis, and she auditioned for the role, and she, which she won. And then the producers of Sanford and Son wanted to fire her because she just hmm. she couldn't sort of adapt to the rhythms of television in a TV script. So Red promised to work with her, which she did, and uh, she, got, she, she nailed it, and the rest is history. She went on to be... Almost as best known a character, almost as well known as Fred Sanford on that show. You know, with her interaction with uh, well, that was, interaction with, with with Fred. Those remain for me the funniest uh, elements of the show. I mean, just when they're doing the dozens on each other, it's just marvelous. And people, when I was a kid watching Sanford and Son, I had no idea that there was that layer of irony there. That Aunt Esther is this prudish church-going lady. Um, you know, with a temper, obviously. And then LaWanda Page was, I guess, as dirty a nightclub comic as Red was in his yes, day. Yes, and, and back in the day had a pretty provocative act called The Goddess of Fire, where she, she would very come out very scantily clad and, and light candles with her with flames on her fingertips. I think that was the way they described it. But, yeah, and, and the fact that they had known each other all their lives, I think, definitely helped with the, with the, on-screen, chem, uh, the on-screen chemistry. And it was sort of like two old friends talking to each other and, and sort of beating each other down. And you, you can tell when you watch a show how much, I think, how much they enjoy working with each other. Oh, yeah. Oh, I, that's, you can't miss it. I mean, it's wonderful. But one of the things I wanted to get to, um, and I talked a couple of months ago to, um, oh, my gosh, now I'm blanking on her name, but the singer-comedian who came up with... Uh, the novelty song Bouncer Boobies and a lot of the proto women's lib comedy. Help me out here. She's played I'm, I'm thinking and I, I played a lot on Dr. Demento. Oh forgive me for not remembering this, but if you scroll back on the list of guests who've appeared on Dave's Gone By, um well anyway, one of the things that she said was I mean she had the nightclub gig and she did you know, very, very well for herself. But she was also one of those first people who made it big on the party record circuit. I mean, it wasn't on the Billboard charts. It wasn't being shown anywhere. But she was selling more records and brown paper wrappers and under-the-counter than, you know, half the people who were being measured by your hit parade and, and the top 100. And, and, of course, Red Fox was part of that circuit, too. Yeah, I mean, his, his, his first party record, which was called Laugh of the Party, L-A-F-F, Laugh of the Party, went gold. I mean, uh, it, it, he was paid $25 by a guy named Dootsie Williams, who had a, a label called, called Dudo Records. And, um, you know, he paid Red $25 to re- uh, I'm sorry, is that, I'm sorry. What, what? Is, it wasn't 25 bucks? Hello? Just like anyway, he was he yeah. was paid yeah twenty five dollars by a good by Duty to record his act, 
And, um, you know, Red said, okay, well, whatever. You know, he, didn't, he thought nothing of it. He was at playing a club called the, the Brass Rail in Los Angeles as a solo act. Duke Williams came in with his tape recorder, recorded Red's act, you know, over the course of a couple nights, put out this record called Laugh of the Party, which went gold. I mean, it was amazing. And he made quite a mint off of, uh, for over the next eight or nine years, off of these Red Fox party records. You know, there's Laugh of the Party 2, Laugh of the Party 3, and then, then they just branched out. So it was, uh, it, Red was really the forerunner, I think, in, in, in that genre. And that's really how he made a name for himself. Uh, eventually, those those party records, which played to a predominantly African-American audience in the beginning, crossed over to the mainstream. You know, white college kids started listening to them, and, they, and then he became sort of this, this underground hero. Um, not quite in the Lenny Bruce vein, but, but close. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, by the way, Rusty Warren was the name of the Ah, yes, yes, Knockers Up. Uh, knockers Up, that's it, yes. Sorry, <laughs> Rusty, I, I'm, uh, forgive me for not remembering your name. But yeah, you're right, you're right, Dave. She was, she was... Uh, as a matter of fact, when you when you if you, if you go to like an old record shop and you go to the the comedy album uh, displays, it's always you know it's always Red Fox and Rusty Warren are always the first two you find. That's right. Yeah. Um. So how did did he have to audition for Sanford and Son, or was uh, the role tailor made for him? It's a little bit of both. Um, Norman Lear and Bud York and the producers of the show had had a hit the year before with All in the Family for CBS which they had borrowed from a BBC show called Till Death Do Us Part, which was extremely popular in, in the U.K. In, mm-hmm. in the 60s. And they had had so much success with that that they went back to the well, and they said, okay, well, you know, we'll take another show, which was called Steptoe and Son, uh, which was about a, a, a junk man and his son in the, in the uh, east end of London, right. called Wilfred Bramble and, and Harry Corbett, and was a huge hit in, in England on the BBC. So they bought the rights to it, but they didn't quite know how to... Ca- they, they knew they wanted an ethnic bent to the show, but they didn't quite know what ethnicity. They tried a Jewish version, they tried an Italian version with Paul Sorvino, they tried oh. an Irish version with, uh, I forget who, like, maybe it was Barnard Hughes, I don't remember. But nothing seemed to work. And then uh, an actor named Cleavon Little, a very, very fine actor, people might remember him from Blazing Saddles. Sure. Uh, was, a, was a friend of, of Red's, and he mentioned to Bud York, and he said, you know, you should take a look at this guy, Red Fox. You go check him out. He, Red had made a movie called Cotton Comes to Harlem in 1970, which was directed by Ozzie Davis, and um, Godfrey Cambridge was in that movie, and it was, it was a very well-known movie at, uh, of his time. And in the movie, Red played a junk man. It was perfect. Oh. Named, named, his name was Uncle Bud in the movie, who looked almost exactly like Fred Sanford would look in Sanford and Son. So Yorkin went to see the movie, fell in love with Red, and, and he felt that he had the star of the show, you know, because they wanted to set it in a junkyard. They wanted to make it a little edgy by setting it in Watts, which had been the scene of some race riots several years before in L.A. And they called Red up, uh, they got in touch with Red, and strangely enough, he didn't want the role because at that time he, he was more focused on doing a cooking show with his wife. <laughs> he said he wanted to sort of air locally in, in Las Vegas. He had a house in Las Vegas because he was such a big draw in Vegas. And he sort of had to be talked into, well, I think when he found out how much money could be made, he was all in. But So um, Yorkin, uh, Bud Yorkin flew out to Las Vegas, met with Red. They, you know, they hit it off. And then they flew out uh, Damon Wilson, who had been on an episode of All in the Family, so he was sort of known to Bud Yorkin and Norman Lear. Um, and they flew him out to meet Red. Those two hit it off. 
they read through the script. Everything seemed to be great. Uh, yeah. And they right there, right then and there, they said, "Okay, well, you know, we'll, we'll go back to LA in a few weeks and we'll shoot the pilot," which they did uh, around Christmas time in 1971. Now, keep in mind at this time, and I, I always find this interesting too, because people think of Fred Sanford as this really, really old man. Well, Red was only 49 when he shot that pilot. He was actually was 49 for the whole first season of Sanford and Son. Wow. But, I mean, he was supposed to, the character of Fred Sanford was, six, was supposed to be 65, but, you know, they, they, they grayed up Red's hair, he grew yeah. that scraggly beard, and his voice, though, really was like that at that time. You know, he had spent so many years in the clubs and smoking cigarettes and, and, and snorting coke and, you know, smoking pot. It, it had really sort of added that timber to his voice. But he did adopt that sort of that bow-legged shuffle and, um, you know, stooped his back a little bit and yeah, transformed himself in, in, into Fred Sanford. And yeah. when they shot the pilot, they shot it on the CBS, uh, at the CBS studios in, in L.A. And they invited the cast of All in the Family to come watch, and they said that they were just rolling on the floor laughing. They shot, I think it was two scenes, actually, early on. But strangely enough, Yorkin and Lear could not get CBS interested and oh. I don't know, it might have been a race thing, um, or maybe they just didn't want to, you know, they had gone through a lot of headaches with All in the Family, which, as we know, was a huge show and turned out to be a huge show. So what uh, Bud Yorkin did was he invited Fred, um, Joe, uh, Joe um, I forgot his, uh, Herb Schlosser, who was the president of the West Coast uh, Entertainment Division of NBC, NBC, yeah. Yeah, NBC sort of snuck him in the back door through CBS and had him up in the stands watching this pilot tape. And at the end of the pilot, uh, you know, Schlosser went down and said to uh, Bud York, you know, you got yourself a series. Let's, you know, we're, we're going to put it on the air in another month. Uh, so they rushed back. They, you know, they, they shot the first episode, and sure enough, uh, Sanford and Son did premiere on NBC in January of 1972 and shot right up to number two, right behind uh, All in the Family. Wow, which didn't make CBS happy. I'm sure they were kicking themselves that they didn't that they didn't buy the show. And, and so the rest I, of history. I mean, for the for most of its run, the first four or five years, Sanford and Son and All in the Family kind of interchanged. You know, one and two uh, as the top rated shows of, the, of each week. Sometimes it was All in the Family. Sometimes it was Sanford and Son. I didn't remember. But it wasn't extremely. Yeah. It was a usually popular show. Sanford and Son was yeah. uh, in its time. And, you know, inevitably, as most shows do, towards the end, it started to run out of steam. Uh, the scripts got very silly. The ratings went down. Um, and and I, sh- I should also mention, in the yeah. third season of the show, Red staged his very famous walkout, where he walked out over, over salary and missed about, about eight episodes of the show. Um, at the time, it was, you know... The press made a big deal because they said, you know, he walked out because he wanted a window in his dressing room, which he didn't... Part of that's partly true, but it really was. It, it was really mostly about the money. Red felt that as NBC's biggest comedy star, he wasn't being paid as much as Carol O'Connor was for All in the Family on CBS. He had a valid point. The show was doing very well, and he walked out, and uh, he was basically AWOL for for months. And um, while he was absent from the show, what Bud Yorkin did was to move. Uh, Whitman Mayo into the lead role. He, he played Grady, huh. and, they, and they kind of wrote Fred Sanford off as you know he had gone back to St. Louis to to, uh, to a relative's funeral. And every once in a while, there'd be a scene where Grady would answer the phone and say, "Hey, it's Fred on the other end. Yeah, I'll be back soon." <laughs> you know that sort of thing. 
And they finally, um, after about almost four months, uh, Red finally hammered out a deal with, with NBC where he got a very, very, very big pay raise. He uh, got to own part of the show, which is what he always wanted. Which he ended up losing, and when he divorced his second wife, by the way. Yeah, that's that's what I also wanted to get to. Of here he is. He's, he he was making great money in Vegas, and then he right. gets this enormously popular television show on NBC. He, he he even walks away from it to make more money. How the hell? I mean, okay, so you have a divorce, and you lose half of what you got. How did he lose uh, seemingly everything? He. Uh you know, if, if you're going to put the picture of a bad businessman in the dictionary, I, I think, you know, Red would be right up there. He had, he had, he just, he had no sense of um, money and, and, and like how to invest it or how to save it. And basically, whatever came in, he spent just as quickly. Um, first of all, he had a, he had a, a, a very steady cocaine habit, excuse me, cocaine habit, which he was very open about. He would, he would snort coke. You know, uh, at the table reads for Sanford and Sonia, he wore a little spoon around his neck. He, he never made any apologies for that. Uh, he did start his own production company once Sanford and Son hit it big, but just through very bad in- investments. And he he opened a beauty parlor, which didn't, which went nowhere. He had a business which he called car flocking, which was basically people would come in and have their cars velvetized with velvet. And somebody said, "Well, you know, what happens when it rains?" <laughs> Oops, didn't think of that. Well, because he's in Vegas. It never rings. It wouldn't right. be an issue. Oh, my God. So, the, so, the, so that business went bust. And <laughs> Velvetize your car. That's yeah. horrifying. Okay. He, he bought himself a building um, on La Brea Boulevard, in, in which he called the Red Fox Building, which is a pretty big building um, in Los Angeles, which he never paid the rent on. Oh. And he ended up having that taken away from him. Because um, there's, a, there's his, a scene, and I, taxes, which yeah, at the I, end of his life caught up with him. Yeah, I remember the scene even before, like the era of YouTube, of him being interviewed. He's standing in front of like the gate of his house that's been padlocked, and he's almost crying for the television cameras. That he can't believe they're, they're I don't know. I, it felt real. Not like he wasn't even. No, yeah, it. that 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 was real, and I and I talk about that in the book. I mean, and you're right, Dave. I mean, there, you, the the IRS raided his house in, uh, at about 6 a.m. in the morning in, in 1989. He owed a, over three million dollars in taxes. Oh my God! Which he knew about. I mean, he wasn't stupid. He he, he just his his uh, his motto was just you know I ain't paying. I, I don't care. He actually, as a matter of fact, he once said, "When there's a black president, I'll pay my taxes." <laughs> He'd be in trouble now, wouldn't he? But you're right. How did he but, climb? Um, so okay, I mean, you figure as horrible as three million dollars in back taxes sounds. One also figures, well, he might, if he kept working on Sanford or something, he could pay it, you know. Was he able to sort of extricate, extricate himself? He started to, towards the end, after the IRS raided his house, they took virtually everything, including a wristwatch he right off his wrist that he had, had been given to him by Elvis Presley. Oh, my God. Um, they, and they actually did, several months later, auction off. He had a whole collection of, of classic cars, which the IRS auctioned off to help pay back some of his debt. He ended up getting some of his stuff back. And ironically, right before he passed away in that, that particular week in October of 1991, he had just signed off on, you know, a, a payment schedule to start paying back everything he owed. And it looked like his career was starting to go back on the upswing. I mean, after Sanford and Son, it was pretty much a downward spiral. 
into uh, you know lawsuit endless endless oh. endless lawsuits. I can't even begin to tell you how many lawsuits. It's all in there in the book of just everything. Because I, I would and figure that uh, even though television was no longer necessarily knocking on his door, he could always go back to Vegas and do he could, the club and, thing and, and tour. And, and, and as one of his former one of his former managers says in the book, I mean, he could roll out of bed and make a million bucks, and he did do that. But he spent the money just as quickly, and, mm. and he was being sued, and he had judgments against them, and liens against houses, and so whatever he made was was being spent elsewhere. Uh, whether it was his drug habit, or uh, he was addicted to um, Keno, which was a, it's a game you play in Vegas, and he spent a lot of money at the Keno oh, tables. For God's also, he was you know I should point this out. I mean, he was also an extremely generous man, and I, I try to make that point in the book that part of his downfall was his generosity, because if you were a friend of Red's, you were a friend for life, and he would virtually give you the money out of his pocket, I mean, 100, 200 bucks, whatever. There's a story that Della Reese tells in the book about, um, I think it was in the late 60s, you know, she was a pretty successful singer at that point, but was had, had fallen on hard times, and she called up Red just to say hello, uh, and she came to see him backstage at a club he was playing at. It might have been Vegas, I don't remember. And Red sort of faked an illness, and said to, the, said to the club manager, you know, I can't do the late show, I don't feel well, you know, why don't you put Della on? Which they did, and she got paid, and it sort of started, sparked her career again. And, and so he was, he was extremely generous mm. uh, to a fault, which I think was part of his downfall. He never got paid back. And you mentioned before that sort of those clips of him on his driveway when the IRS came in. He does say, you know, he is almost crying, and he says, you know, I've helped so many people through my life, all I need is just one person to step forward now to help me, and you know, no one ever did. Well, uh, you need someone to help him with three million dollars. <laughs> Somebody paying well, back two hundred bucks was, is not, you know. He was hoping I think Eddie Murphy would help because oh. uh, he had acted in a movie called Harlem Nights, and Eddie Murphy always said how much he he, he admired Red, and he really never did help him. I, he did end up paying for Red's funeral. That was always the rumor, but he didn't come through with the big money I think Red was hoping for, and. Um, so, yeah, he kind of, you know, he, he went out with his career, just looked like it was just getting back on track. And then, as a matter of fact, I think it was, I don't remember the comedian's name. Might have been... Uh, Slappy the guy, White? I forget, the guy in Comedy Central who walked away from, from that huge deal a couple of years ago. Anyway, oh, he said, you know, oh, I know who you're talking about. Um, yeah, you know, Dave... Yeah, yeah. Um, oh, okay, uh, yeah. Yeah, I think... Chappelle, Dave but, Chappelle. Dave Chappelle, thank you. Mm-hmm. I think it was Dave Chappelle who said, you know, well, you know, he's a genius. He, you know, he died right, <laughs> right before he had to pay any money back. He just dropped <laughs> dead. So, you know, let's give, let's give the man props. He didn't have to pay any of the money back. But, um, and it's also pretty good to die on the upswing, like when you're hopeful and things are turning around. So you're, you're, it's kind of a nice, not that it's a great time to die, but, hey, he went out with his boots on. Didn't he die on set? He did. And, and there's, you can watch, the, there were clips of him. He had... One of the theories. Well, first of all, I mean, his heart just gave out. He was he was only sixty eight, but I mean, he had he had packed probably twenty more years into that life than you know with just you know the, the club life, the smoking, the cigarette, the the interviews that Red gave towards the end of his life. You know, three or four years before that, you can tell he was laboring for breath and probably had emphysema. Mm. Um, but he did suffer a massive heart attack. But uh, some people think that he was also um, what one of the causes might have been was he was under a very, very strict watch by the CBS executives because they knew that he could be trouble on the set of a show. He had several other shows after 
Sanford and Son failed that he you know he, he just sort of caused a lot of trouble on the set and it, it always ended badly. So they were keeping a pretty tight rein on him and that day, the day he passed away, he was giving an interview with the Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous. Remember that Robin Leach show? Sure. And there were clips of him, you know, and, and he was he was giving this interview in another backstage in another room and one of the production assistants interrupted the interview because they said they needed red to what they called to block a scene, which was basically not even rehearsing. They basically needed him to stand there so they could, you know, get the camera angles right. Sure. And he was pissed, you know, and, and, he, and, and he felt humiliated. And he says to the interviewer, you know, I'm so sorry, you know, this, this is embarrassing, but, you know, let me get this done and I'll be right back. And he's mumbling, and you, you can tell he's visibly angry. He walked away, went to the set, and dropped dead. So, oh, my God. <laughs> that's, you know, one of the theories, I mean, Let's face it, the guy, as I said before, he, he died of a heart attack. He died of, 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 of living a very hard life and, and, you know, not a very healthy guy. But I think, you know, also the stress of having, being babysat by the network and being embarrassed like that probably didn't help. So. Can I ask one of the first things you said when we started this interview? And by the way, we're talking with Michael Starr, the author of Black and Blue, The Red Fox Story, available from Applause Theater and Cinema Books, ladies and gentlemen, and all the and places. And Amazon.com and, and all your other places. And also, is it electronically available? Yeah, Kindle yeah, it's a, yeah. everything. I've got to get all the plugs in. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's, yeah, you yeah. can get it on, on the Nook and Kindle and electronically and every platform you can think of. <laughs> it's out there. Thank well, you. Yeah, um, but you, you said that. Of course, one of the best things about writing a book like this is discovering things that you've never expected or didn't know about your subject. So what were one or two things that were really, really surprising to you about Red Fox when you were writing I, Black and Blue? Yeah, I, I, I think, you know, I, his recording career and, and the fact mm-hmm. that he was good enough, as, and even as you mentioned, that he was good enough to get to pass an audition and to actually be paid to put his voice on record, that surprised me. I didn't, I also wasn't, Aware that when you know when well I was I knew that when Red was seventeen he he basically he and his several of his friends hopped a freight train illegally you know in those days you know with what they called riding the rails and he ended up in Harlem but in in he ended up in Harlem in July of nineteen thirty nine so he was oh wow almost he wasn't even seventeen yet almost seventeen he was good enough he got together with some other guys in the neighborhood, and they, and they auditioned for and passed an audition to get onto Major Bo's Amateur Hour, which was one of the, it was probably the biggest radio show of its day, um, hosted by a guy named Major Bose. I mean, it was listened to by 30, 40 million people. And Red, I mean, he, you know, he was known as John Sanford, then was, you know, was nobody, part of a little, uh, you know, a street corner singing group, was good enough to pass an audition and get onto national radio show, and, and that recording is also available. I um, through the, the um, oh, wow. I had to get permission to listen to it. It's, it's in the national archives because somebody owns the, the Major Bose collection. I, but I, it's I, amazing I just... listening to, <laughs> to listening to you know John Sanford and his friends on the Major Bose when he was sixteen and a half years old wow. on a major radio show. Amazing, and, and so, yeah, so that that amazed me. I mean, I just I had no idea and. I wasn't aware of his relationship also with Slappy White, who went on to his, a very own, his very own successful stand-up comedy career. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, Red and Slappy toured. They were known as Fox and White. They toured the Chitlin Circuit. They played the Apollo Theater. No, wait, Slappy Fox White and... That- hold, hold on, hold on a sec. It, it occurs to me that they missed an amazing opportunity right there, because well, shouldn't they just call themselves Red and White? You think, mean. right? Red and White. I mean, that, that's, I thought the same thing. No, but they, they, went, they went Fox and White, and... Uh, 
Um, yeah, red and white probably would have made more sense. And uh, red, white, and blue, because, you know, red was a blue comedian. There you go. But um, uh, at, that, at that time in his life, Slappy White was married to Pearl Bailey, oh. who was a you know, very big star. And I think red was always sort of angry at her. He, did, he ended up making a movie with her years later called Norman, Is That You? Uh-huh. And they, they bickered like, like brother and sister on the set of that movie because red had always been angry at her because he felt back in 1949, 1950, she didn't do enough to help out their act because she was a, obviously was a much bigger name then. She was already in the movies and, you know, a big recording star. And he always felt that she should have done more to help out her husband and, and his partner, which was, which was Red Fox. Oh. Um, oh. But, but um, Fox and White toured with the very great jazz singer Dinah Washington, and she brought oh. them out to L.A. She wanted them to open as her opening act. Wow. It didn't quite work out, but she, it, it, ironically, she ended up going back east with, she took Slappy White with her as her MC, and so Red was left in L.A. on his own. That broke up the act of, of Fox and White. They, Red and Slappy remained friends for life. I mean, Slappy White was, oh, whatever show Red Fox did, even after he made it famous on San Francisco, you know, a comedy show, he always had Slappy on the bill. And Slappy appeared on the first several seasons of Sanford and Son as a character named Melvin. But, um, you know, he, comedy fans know he, he forged a pretty good stand-up career of his own. Yeah, but, sure. It was the fact that Dinah Washington took Slappy back east with her that left Red in L.A. on his own and forced him to do his solo act, which in turn led to the party records, and he met his future wife, and, you know, Dootsie Williams, as I mentioned before. And so, you know, that might not ever have happened had Slappy White and Red stayed together. You know, Red might not yeah. have ever have done those party records. Who knows? But Speaking of the personal, really... speaking of the personal stuff, um, have you had reactions from people close to either family members or, or close friends, since the book has come out? Um, any, anybody contact you and say, oh, this is wonderful, you made this little mistake, or, or what? Um, that, that's, that's a good question, Dave. You know, when I was writing the book, I approached Red. Red was married he, in 19, right around the time of Laugh of the Party in his first big comedy record. He married a woman named uh, Jean. Jean Harris, she was part of the, there was a singing group called the Harris Sisters, and they were pretty big names of, on their own. There were three singing sisters who, uh, who charted with several hits. And um, Red married Jean. The marriage lasted about 25 years through the second or third season of Sanford and Son is when they broke up and they divorced. Oh. I, Jean is still alive. She lives in Las oh. Vegas. Oh. I tried many, many times to get in touch with her. We spoke briefly several times. I, you know, I emailed her. She, she never wanted to. She didn't answer my email. She didn't want to get involved in the book. Um. Her daughter from her first marriage was a, a girl, a woman named Debrica, who, when Red married Jean, he adopted. Uh-huh. So Debrica took the last name of Fox, so she's always been known as Debrica Fox. It was Red's adopted daughter. I approached her, too, never heard back. You know, basically got the old crickets, you know, the emails <laughs> and the phone calls, and people said they knew her, they'd pass along the message, blah, blah, blah. Never heard back. So the book was published last fall in October. And I went out to Las Vegas to do a book signing at a Barnes and Noble because you know Red was a, just a huge draw, as you mentioned, a huge draw in Las Vegas. Got a very nice turnout. And as I'm signing books, I see two older African American women, and I'm saying to myself, I wonder if that's Jean and Debrica. But I was busy. I was signing books and talking to people. They walk over to the table where I am, and I look at her and I say, Jean because I knew what she looked like, and she said, yeah, that's me, you know, oh. and she was with Debrica. 
we made some kind of awkward small talk. I said, you know, I did reach out to you, and I never heard back. And I had a stack of books on the table. They, they were looking through the book, and you're looking at the pictures. Didn't buy any books on my dad. <laughs> <laughs> and we made, we made very awkward small talk, and they walked away. That's the last I heard. So I don't, you know. Oh, oh I was expecting they, a whole different story. You know, story she said that. she was working on her own book, but she told me that, you know, 12 years ago when I first encountered her. So uh, doubtful that's ever going to happen. Um, so, yeah, that's, that was my really one brush with his family. Um, Red had a manager for years named Prince Spencer, who was one of, who was uh, very uh, well-known in the 50s, actually made a movie with Sammy Davis Jr. He was a very good dancer, oh. Prince was. And when his career ended, he became sort of Red's, uh, you know, Guy Friday, his manager. He'd do, you know, run Red's dry cleaning, you know, run his errands for him, travel, you know, get his, got his suits pressed. They were very close. He's still alive. He's about 94 now. Wow. And yeah, and he lives in Vegas. And I did find, I did track him down. He's not very hard to find. I got him on the phone. I got his wife on the phone. The first time she said, uh, you know, Prince is out at the gym. This was the guy who was 92 <laughs> at the time. <laughs> so she's like, call him back. So I did call him back. And he basically, long story short, he just said, listen, I'm 94. I'm tired. I'm, you know, I, I've talked, I've spoken all I can about Red Fox. I just want to, you know, live mm. out the rest of my life in peace. So I didn't really get a chance to interview him. Uh. I would have liked to have. Um, and unfortunately, by the time I got to researching and writing this book, people like Slappy White and LaWanda Page, I mean, they, they've all passed on. So, I, I mean, I did interview a lot of people, and a lot, a lot of people who wrote for and worked with Red on Sanford and Sons, you know, former managers of his and co-stars of his. So I did speak to a lot of people. But personally, it, I would, it would have been nice to have spoken to Gene and Red had two other wives towards the end of his life. Um, in the mid-70s, I'm trying to think now, in the mid-70s he married a woman named, he, a Korean woman he called Joy. Okay. They were married, and, and Barbara Walters, when, when Red jumped from NBC to ABC, he was stolen away by Fred Silverman, gave him a huge, huge deal, over a million dollars a year for Red to host a, a very, which turned out to be short-lived variety show on ABC. Anyway... Fred Silverman at that time had also stolen Barbara Walters away from NBC, so she, he stole Barbara Walters and, and Red Fox away. And sort of to welcome Red to ABC, Barbara Walters did a primetime interview special where she interviewed Red mm-hmm. and his then wife Joy, who was at that that time was his third wife. But I couldn't find Joy. I mean, they Red was married to Joy for about six years. Most people told me that she was really the love of his life, and even after oh. they were divorced, he would always buy her flowers on her birthday and. They kept in touch for a little while, but I couldn't find her. And then towards the end of his life, I'd say the last two years, he was involved with another Korean woman named Kaho, who he married in the summer of 91, right, several months oh, before his death. Right. Um, truth be told, she wasn't very well liked by the by Red's intimates, and she, she kind of disappeared from sight. I couldn't find her either. Hmm. Um, but she was with him when he died, and she was with him on the set when he died. So she certainly holds a very you know distinct place in the in the life uh, and the death of of Red Fox. Well, the life and the death of Red Fox is what we have been covering here with Michael Starr, the author of Black and Blue: The Red Fox Story, available from Applause Books on Amazon, of course, and and all the usual ways you get books these days. Can I ask you, Michael, before we let you go, who's your next subject? I have just signed a deal to do a biography of 
Ringo Starr, as a matter of fact. Whoa! The last name is strictly <laughs> a very happy coincidence, but, uh, you know, nobody's ever really done a uh, an in-depth bio of, of Ringo. I mean, you know, we all know the John Lennon and Paul McCartney and, and to an extent, George Harrison, but um, I'd like to do a book about Ringo, just signed a deal, and uh, that hopefully will be coming out in, in a couple of years. Well, do you have access or do you have to go around Ringo? Um, Dave, I'm having trouble hearing you. I'm sorry. Oh, I'm sorry. Do you have access to oh, first person? I've lost you. Okay. Anyway, thank you for having me on the show. I appreciate it. <laughs> Michael, can you, you can you hear me at all? Michael, now I can hear you. I lost you there for a second. Okay. My, my, my one question was, are you going to have first person access to Ringo Starr, or do you have to ask everybody else about him? Uh, remains to be seen at this point. Um I, I, the, the deal has just uh, has just been finalized, so I will approach Ringo. Um, I'm going to say he probably won't talk to me, but you never know. So it it really doesn't matter to the publishers that they want you to do the the book. No, as long as you can get you know the inside story, and you know obviously he's a big enough name, and and uh, his wife has been very public. But when you do these sorts of books, you always want to find out maybe you know and and. and educate people on some things maybe they might not have known. So obviously we all know about the Beatles, but what about before that and, and his life since? So hopefully that'll, uh, that will work out, and uh, maybe we'll be talking about that in a couple of years. That would be great. I, I can't wait to read it. Also, everybody know that Michael Starr has written books about Art Carney and Joey Bishop and Raymond Burr, and of course the book we've been talking about, Black and Blue, The Red Fox Story. Thank you so much for... Uh, Thank you, Dave. I really appreciate you having me on. Thanks, Michael. Have a great weekend. Bye-bye. Thanks, now. you too. Bye. Michael Seth Starr here on Dave's Gone By talking about his new book. Let's hear a little bit from uh, the fox's mouth. Imagine a television commercial 50 years from today with a Negro announcer. No, 25 years. We don't cut it short. <laughs> 25 years from today, a Negro announcer with a TV commercial. No shit, folks. <laughs> now you can relax. Here, what's the difference between a pickpocket and a peeping Tom? A pickpocket snatches watches. <laughs> I just thought I'd throw that in. You know what I mean? So, the lady had twins last year. First set of kids, twins, first time. She named them Adolph and Rudolph. And this year, she got pregnant again. Doctors told her it was twins. Her husband said, well, what are we going to name them? She said, get off and stay off. <laughs> no, I didn't, I didn't dig school. I didn't see how annoying when Washington crossed the Delaware I was going to help me in a brick fight. <laughs> I got nothing about ducking bricks in history. But here's just a few things. It's funny how life is. Uh, some guys take polls and they have a Gallup stuff and then they have to do surveys and they say that one out of every four people is a freak. So pick out three of your friends. And if they are right, it's you. I'm the only comedian who talks about snot. Didn't that shock you, dear? Because no one else ever said it. I said, snot, 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 booger snot. Now you won't forget my name. 
I think it's Red Wolf, but it's not. Red Fox. Snot is part of growing up. You were a snotty-nosed kid. Ha ha hell. Probably have some snotty-nosed kids of your own. Now, that's why you tell them, suck that up or blow it out and get the hell out of here. I should have been in the movies before now, but it's so much prejudice out there. Honestly, they offered me a role in a sex film. Want me to play the part of a 69-year-old lesbian with a hernia. <laughs> I just want to act in part. You know, where you can really put your teeth into something and listen. All right, Evelyn. Don't make me take my rod out. You know what I mean? One of them kind of roles. No, it's one of them gangster roles, you know what I mean? Hell, they had Negro gangsters, it's just a bunch of prejudice. And they don't call us gangsters. See, we hoodlum. <laughs> I'm not superstitious. You've been fooled to think Negroes are superstitious. I wake everyone up, I see, I said, forget about ghosts. If you see a ghost, cut him. <laughs> That'll break that stuff up. How could a rabbit's foot be lucky when the rabbit lost it? That's right, you've been getting out of the woods. You ever see a smiling three-legged rabbit out there? When you lose one of your hoppers, you a rattlesnake meat. I know that stuff. And black cats. I tell my people, I said, listen, black cats had to be some color. I run over all of them. I don't care what color they are. I'm not gonna wreck my $7,000 automobile ducking no 28-cent cat. That's bad arithmetic. The way I figure it, 7,000 goes over 28 one time. <laughs> Nothing left over. If the world was naked, there wouldn't be trouble and fighting and wars and rumors of wars around the world. Clothes cause all that. If everybody was naked, you think you'd be somewhere lifting a rifle? I might be somewhere lifting a short arm, but not a rifle. <laughs> That's right, clothes make so much difference in folks. It was a guy who went to a house of ill repute. He had both arms in a cast and both legs in a cast. And he walked up to the door and the madam opened the door. She said, well, what do you want? He said, I rang the bell, didn't I? <laughs> There is a role for everyone You simply stand upon a stage And that is art Shalom, damn it This is Rabbi Saul Solomon With a rabbinical reflection For the week of February 19th, 2012 Alive, alive, oi Alive, alive, oi Come see me, I'm acting Alive, alive, oi Remember a few weeks ago I did my one-man show At the University of Northern Colorado of course you don't. Nobody remembers anything anymore. But I'm reminding you, I did a workshop production of my show, Shalom Dammit, an evening with Rabbi Sal Solomon in Greeley, Colorado, just to get an idea whether people would tolerate it. Well, not only did most audiences tolerate it, some even endured it, 
which is why I am bringing my show, Shalom Dammit, to the next step. I'm going to do it off, off Broadway for a week in March, and I'm inviting you all to come. Shalom Dammit is a one-man, two-person show with comedy, music, and a lot of yelling. It's my sermon on the problems and joys, but mostly problems, of American Jewish life in the 21st century. I teach the audience some words in Hebrew and Yiddish, words like schmuck and tuchus and pastrami. Ah, pastrami. I also talk about world religions in a deeply introspective and insulting way. I delve into the Middle East conflict and come up with my hands dirty, filthy, actually, extremely unsanitary. And I touch on such touchy topics as the Holocaust, anti-Semitism, Jews for Jesus, assimilation, alienation, and constipation. As you can see, some content is not suitable for children, or anyone for that matter, but hey, it's New York, so I have to be edgy. My onstage musical director will be Richard Shore, a talented man who actually went to Harvard and got a doctoral degree from Boston University. See, Mom? I don't have to be a Jewish doctor. I got one working for me. And, just in case funny songs and intellectual content and comedy aren't enough for you, there's multimedia. I do a PowerPoint. There's improvisation. I answer your stupid questions. And there's love. Because, God damn it, that's what I'm all about. Shalom Dammit, an evening with Rabbi Sal Salman, plays March 13 to 17 at the Richmond Shepherd Theater, a sweet little playhouse at 309 East 29th Street near 2nd Avenue. If you blink, you miss the place, so don't blink. My show plays only one week, starting March 13th, Tuesday at 2, Thursday through Saturday at 2, Wednesday at 7.30. Tickets are only $18. Chai! And... If you're in school, or old enough to wear dignity pants, you'll get a $3 student or senior discount. Buy your tickets now at brownpapertickets.com. Go figure, we have a ticket service that sounds like toilet tissue. Brownpapertickets.com. And visit shalomdammit.com for more information about my wonderful show. See it before it gets to Broadway, and the only ones who can afford it are Goyesha anti-Semites with corporate charge accounts. Shalom, damn it. An evening with Rabbi Sal Solomon at the Richmond Shepherd Theater. It's the next best thing to Moshiach. This has been a rabbinical reflection from Rabbi Sal Solomon, Temple Sons of Bitches, and off-off Broadway star.
Uh, we loved you too, Davy Jones, of the Monkees here on Dave's Gone By. It is exactly 11.30 in the morning mountain time here at the University of Northern Colorado where you are listening to Dave's Gone By on uncradio.com. Also, if you're at the university and you're dorming here, put on Channel 3 and you can hear this radio station storm, uh, storming, streaming 24-7. On your TV sets, Channel 3. But the rest of us, we listen on uncradio.com. Wanted to let you know my name is Dave Lefkowitz. Wanted to let you know that if you want to email me to make requests for the show, tell me what you thought of the program, or to get on the mailing list for our weekly emails about the program, just email me, Dave's Gone By at AOL.com. It's D A V E S Gone By at AOL.com. And of course, Previous episodes, our whole archives, are at davesgoneby.com. Just go to the homepage, scroll right down, and you'll see all the wonderful interviews and sketches and songs that we have done over the years. Well, we move forward now into the rest of this program, our 378th episode, and, of course, reacting to the really kind of shocking news that this week we lost Davy Jones of the monkeys. Uh, I think he was 66 years old, 60, 66 years old. Um, amazing. Uh, it's just kind of this weird thing. You thought they'd all be going forever, and it's that, that weird moment of like, okay, we lost one beagle, and then we lost another beagle. Because these things go through my mind all the time sometimes. I figure, wow, isn't it amazing that Fats Domino is still alive, and Chuck Berry played a concert on New Year's Eve in New York, and these folks are still here, and yet... Here and there, one by one, we also lose people like Mary Travers of Peter, Paul, and Mary, and now, of course, Davy Jones. But someone who has written about the monkeys in a book called The Monkey's Tale, and I think later renamed Monkey Business when it went into a second printing, is a fellow named Eric Lefkowitz. No relation, as far as I know. He even spells it a little differently from... Uh, how I spell my name, but I welcome him to the neighborhood. He's on the phone with us. Where where are you calling from, uh, Eric? I'm calling from Port Washington, New York. Oh my God, you're a Long Islander. You're a Lonsman. Well, yes, I am. Yeah, so so cool. Um, and how long ago did you write the monkey's biography? Well, the original biography I wrote, The Monkey's Tale, was published in 1985. Um, so I guess 27 years ago, and I, then yeah. I. Um, expanded it to include what had happened since 1985 in a new book called Monkey Business, uh, which came out last year. So what else did you put in there? In other words, what's been going on with the monkeys since, like, the middle 1980s? Um, mm. Well, a lot happened to these guys from the uh, point of departure of the first book. Um, when I wrote the book... The monkey's reputation, if there was one, was this um, strictly as a prefab band who had kind of disappeared into the mists of time. Occasionally, you'd see a rerun of their show um, and hear their songs on maybe oldie, oldies radio. Um, but they weren't really estimated in a critical sense uh, for their importance. And uh, they... Uh, had a massive comeback the following year, uh, thanks to MTV, which aired all their episodes uh, in one long marathon. Right, I remember uh, which that. Which MTV then repeated over and over again, and uh, 
the Monkees touched a whole new generation uh, in 1986 and had the best-selling tour um, of that year. They placed a top 20 single called That Was Then, uh, This Is Now, and um, it, it got even more interesting after that, just what happened between the you know members of the group. So there was a lot to write about. Well, I mean, we did have Peter Tork on the show uh, a couple of times over the years, so I kind of know what has been happening with him, and he's clean and sober, and then he had surgery uh, a couple of, like, a year or so ago, he had a throat thing, I assume, and I hope that he's better. David, I'm, I'm oh. going to have to, this connection has suddenly gone bad. Um, yeah, you're the second I'm gonna person call, I'm to... I'm going to call you right back. Wait, wait, can you hear me at all before you uh, hang now up? Now I can. Okay. Oh, okay. Magically, I can hear you. My, oh, yeah. It, it's, our equipment has been really, uh, really delightful today here at UNC Radio, but I'm glad you're still there. And I, I was just saying that we had T- Peter Tork on the show a couple of times, and he was talking about getting over alcoholism, and I know that one of the recent things was that he had some surgery on his throat or his tongue or something that he had to uh, to undergo. So I know what he's been up to, and I know Mickey Dolans has been doing radio. What, what, what else has Mickey been up to? Uh, you ask what ah. else Mickey has been doing? Yeah, yeah. Uh, Mickey uh, is successfully toured in uh, a number of musicals. Um, he's got a great theatrical voice, uh, mm. really underrated voice, you know, and um, he's been in a series of musicals that have toured the States as well as the U.K. He was in Hairspray last year, um, and he was a DJ, and... Um, He's kind of a showbiz gadfly. He, you know, shows up uh, wherever he's uh, invited, provided that the the check clears. <laughs> I've been trying so many times to get him as a guest on the show, and I'm just not not quite big enough a, uh, a star in radio circles. I'm afraid it's always oh, like I'm always... I wouldn't put it that way. I would think that uh, my take on it is like um, a little more cynical than that. Uh, I think that, you know, Mickey is a showbiz pro, and he does things, you know, that um, bring in some cash. And uh, his dad was in show business, and uh, I think this is just like his ethos, and uh, I certainly wouldn't take it personally. Oh, no, well, no. I Well, I take everything personally, but <laughs> that's just me. And what about the, the real kind of uh, oddball of the troupe? I mean, all, a brilliant oddball, of course, but uh, the heir to the whiteout fortune, Michael Nesmith, what on earth has he been doing? Well, he's really a cosmic guy. Um, I won't say I know him any better than the other guys, but... Um, Strangely enough, although he was the most difficult person to reach when I was putting the book together originally, he ended up um, becoming someone who I've corresponded with off and on, you know, over the years. Uh, and so he's, you know, a, uh, an email acquaintance uh, upon occasion. And uh, the last time I was in touch with him was for this new edition of the book. And uh, rather than conducting an interview over the phone uh, in the traditional sense, he asked me to go onto his uh, website, Video Ranch, and to pick an avatar on his online world, and he would have an avatar, and we would meet at a certain space uh, on his, uh, in his world, online world, and have a chat there. Um, and uh, I found that really uh, interesting, 
and slightly odd, unnerving, <laughs> but uh, definitely interesting. That's kind of cool. And was he himself, and were you yourself as avatars, or were you suddenly also in this other weird virtual role-playing world too? Or was it just yeah, you were in a, different... a role-playing world? It's like Papa Nesland. Um, and I think he, you could still join up for uh, you know a trial membership and check it out. It's a very forward-thinking yeah. website. I mean, you can sit there and watch movies at a drive-in movie theater with other people, other avatars, and make comments, you know, as you're watching the movie. Um, he streams live performances on there. I think it's a real legitimate idea. I'm not sure if he's having great commercial success. I'm not sure he's even looking for it. Uh, he, he probably doesn't care. I mean, you know, <laughs> although the whiteout... Uh, Lying must have taken a real hit when computers came into the fore. Uh, but they still sell this stuff. I know that. You can still find it in Staples. So so now let's get to the real reason that we're talking to Eric Lefkowitz, L-E-F-C-O-W-I-T-Z, and that is remembering Davy Jones. So, so what are your reactions to and memories of talking to uh, Jones about your book and, and the anecdotes that you heard about him when digging up information for The Monkey's Tale. Yeah, well, you know, I heard just from a friend <clears throat> he passed away and uh, it was of course a shock, you know, because uh, <clears throat> I've been studying this group for all these years and so I feel you know, a personal connection to them and uh, I was very sad to hear the news. Um, I'll be quite honest with you. I, I expected Davy to be the first one to go. Um, Interesting. Why? Uh, he lived a hard life, and um, I think his last few years were tumultuous. Although I, I'm happy to say he, I think he achieved a great deal of success you know, in the last year of his life um, by conducting a tour with the band and being the creative director of that tour. And um, I'm sure that brought him a lot of satisfaction because here's a guy who really was the meal ticket for the whole enterprise and yet was always on the short end of the stick you know i know he was short pardon the pun but um when it came to getting control over his career over the project um he was uh you know uh, an amazing entertainer because he brought sunshine and light you know into people's lives um but but let and me yet ask he could still pivot you know, very well into the strange psychedelic shenanigans that they got into at uh, towards the end of the original run of the show mm-hmm. and their movie. Um, so I think he was a really capable entertainer who's probably never really had to rise to the creative heights that he did during that first era. Um, I wish he had been uh, tested more because I think he really had a lot of acting talent. Well, he was Tony nominated for uh, Oliver before the whole monkeys thing came along. He was already kind of a musical theater star, both in the West End and on Broadway. Then the monkeys happened. But I I am a little surprised to say that um, you're saying that he had a particularly hard life. What was, I mean, was substance abuse or... Well, I I can't say for a fact, of course. Uh, There were some incidents that I detail in the book where... You know, there was a, a bar fight. You know, towards uh, towards the end of his life, where he, he was on stage and getting heckled, and 
you know, maybe he had a drink in him, maybe he didn't. I, I wasn't there, but it made it made the wire services. He basically threatened, you know, to take the people out and, mm. you know, start a brawl. I'm sure it was just a, a moment, uh, you know, he snapped for a second. Um, but uh, he also married for the fourth time, um, and the marriage apparently was controversial within the family. Um, he was a very tight-knit family guy, but he kind of a December May marriage, I think that's what it's called, oh, you sure. know, to a much younger woman. Uh he expressed, you know, a lot of uh affection for her. Um so I'm sure, you know, from his point of view it was um a, a great thing, but I guess a lot of people were kind of surprised. Um and uh yeah, Davey was uh he led the rock and roll life even though we don't think of him as a hardcore, you know, rock and roller, um, you know, he, from a very early age, he was in show business, and um, so his career was a long one, despite, you know, passing away at a relatively young age, 66, he was in show biz for, you know, 50 years. Wow. Wow. And uh, we are remembering the late Davy Jones here with Eric Lefkowitz, the author of, is it now called Monkey Business? Is that the, the new revised title of the book if people want to get the book? Yes, it's called uh, Monkey Business, and then uh, the secondary subtitle is uh, The Revolutionary Made-for-TV Band. Um, and, uh, yeah, I had to change the name from The Monkey's Tale for copyright purposes. This version of it is something that I actually... Um, published myself and so it's um uh now owned by me and distributed by me through through amazon primarily or you can get it on barnes and noble there's an ebook version of it as well so before we let um eric lefkowitz go i I do want to ask uh, like one or two more questions about some of the more um unexpected or surprising things that you might be able to tell us either about Davy Jones or the monkeys in general that that you were tracking down either for the first version of the book or for the revision. What are things we might not expect or that might be like, wow, I didn't know that? Well, I think, um, you know, I don't like to stir the dirt up, but uh, the guys didn't always get along. I think that was, you know, uh, well-known to any monkeys fans uh, who studied it. Um, I think there was real intense rivalry between Mickey and Davy. Hmm. Um, you know, Mickey got the lead vocals on their biggest hits uh, until Davey came along and had a couple of big hits. And what really surprised me was that the Monkees fought very hard to get control over their recordings, and they finally won that right um, to go into the studio. And in one amazing week, um, they went into the studio and actually played on tracks with studio musicians, but they were on the tracks of um, Pleasant Valley Sunday, which was a top ten hit, of course, and mm-hmm. later Daydream Believer. What was interesting to me was that um, the Pleasant Valley Sunday session, which was really the first significant recording session, you know, historically significant in their careers, that Davey wasn't present. And there was a couple of other incidents like that, um, like the Beatles uh, management, the Brian Epstein, um, threw a party for the Monkees after their uh, triumphant shows in the UK in 67. And uh, Davey didn't attend those. And I think there was uh, a difference between 
Davey and the rest of the band. I think Davey was a showbiz guy who you put the line on the on the you know uh, on the floor and he hit his mark and he read his lines and he was a true professional that way. And I think the other guys were a little looser, a little more rock and roll. And um, I think Davey may have disapproved of hmm. some of their licentious behavior. You know, he was no choir boy, but you know. Uh, Peter, in particular, like was quite the wild child uh, during the Monkees, um, and I think Davey, you know, found that um, kind of dicey. Huh. At the same time, there's other interesting things. Like he got married before, way before his fans ever found out. He was always rumored to be dating some sort of TV actress or other star, um, but in fact, he had gone off and gotten married and. Um, and I found that interesting because the monkeys were striving for cre- uh, credibility after kind of being uh, denounced as just a prefabrication. And so um, the fact that they could hide certain parts of their uh, private lives back in the day, now you'd never get away with it, I guess. Yeah. But um, it's kind of amazing what happened behind the scenes. Uh, it's all there in the book, and I hope... Uh, couple listeners can can pick it up and check it out because uh i believe their story is one of the most of course i would say this but i think it's one of the most interesting stories in the history of entertainment well to read the monkey's tale aka monkey business by eric lefkowitz go to amazon go to you know the the various and do you have a website of your own where people can uh... yeah if you go to monkey business of course two e's with monkey monkeybusiness.com um, you can get a preview chapter. You can get a link to um, where you can buy it. And also, um, there's a collector's edition that a friend of mine did that uh, it's hard to describe, but you'll see it on the site. Uh, it has, like, a, a premium that comes with the book. It's uh, for people who like to collect things. Okay. Um, they're going fast. But uh, check out the um, the alternate cover and what uh, comes with that because that's, that's something really neat. Well, it's been great fun monkeying around with Eric Lefkowitz. Thank you so much for being in the neighborhood and sharing your memories and experiences writing about the monkeys and the late Davy Jones. Thanks so much for, for being with us. It's always nice talking to another Lefkowitz. Take care, Dave. <laughs> Thank you so much, man. Bye-bye. Bye. Walking down the street, we get the funniest looks from everyone we meet. And people say we monkey around But we're too busy singing To put anybody down We go wherever we want to Do what we like to do We don't want the time to get restless There's always something new Hey, hey, we're the monkeys And people say we monkey around But we're too busy singing Put anybody down We're just trying to be friendly Come and watch us sing and play We're the young generation And we've got something to say Anytime Or anywhere Just look over your shoulder Guess who'll be standing there 
People say we monkey around We're too busy singing To put anybody down Saul Solomon talking to you from the radio waves of the University of Northern Colorado, uncradio.com. I am so thrilled that my good friend Dave Lefkowitz allowed me to get on the microphone with you this fine Saturday morning to talk about my show. Shalom, damn it, an evening with me. Rabbi Saul Solomon, which will be playing in New York at the Richmond Shepherd Theater March 13th through the 17th of this very year. It is only days away. So I expect you all there because we need the money. It's only $18 to get in, so don't be cheap. Tell your friends, tell your family, tell everybody. Come to the Richmond Shepherd Theater, 309 East 26th Street, right near 2nd Avenue. So uh, when you're done with the show or before the show, you can maybe go to Katz's Delicatessen for some delicious non-kosher, but still delicious food. Or maybe wander around the Bowery and hit up some bums for the $18 to get into the show. Whatever you want to do, make sure you come to it. Shalomdammit.com is the website to find all the information about the show. Shalomdammit.com. But you know, I could get in here and get on the microphone and wax rhapsodic about the show. How brilliant it is. How we talk about all sorts of aspects of Jewish life. From the Middle East to Christianity, to the Holocaust, to Hebrew, to Yiddish, and the wonderful things and the hilarious times that we have in this show. But it wouldn't be as interesting as being able to talk to the person who's going to be with me on the stage of the Richmond Shepherd Theater. He is the musical director for the show. He is playing the piano with his own fingers and his own name is Richard Shore. You may know him from the University of Northern Colorado because he plays the music here for a lot of the shows and shows in rehearsal. So, Richard, let us make sure your microphone works. Shalom to you on the Saturday morning. Good Shabbos. Shalom, Rabbi. Good Shabbos back to you. Okay, can you get a little bit closer to the microphone here? Is that any better? 
Let me see. Talk, talk, uh, talk a little more. Let me hear you I'll on the talk, mic. I'll talk. I'll uh, talk. Uh, shalom. Good Shabbos. Oh, very It's good. a nice Saturday. Is that, uh, is that better? It's absolutely wonderful. Absolutely. Wonderful. So, are you excited about being part of Shalom Demet? I am so amazingly thrilled. I can't tell you. I'm, 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 I'm shivering in my boots. I'm so excited. I can, oh, yeah. I can, uh, there's a little yellow puddle forming by your boots. I would I'm say. sorry. I'll mop that up after we're done. Yeah. Please do that. Please. Because otherwise it'll, the puddle will be here for weeks, oh. the way they keep up this radio station. But let me ask, how did you initially get into playing music? Well, I was about seven years old, so this is a long time ago, and my brother and my sister both played music, and I felt a little left out, and I asked my parents if I could take piano lessons. Okay, and they said, I assume they said yes. They said yes, and it took us forever to find a piano teacher who was actually willing to sit down and spend 40 minutes with me every week, but uh, we found somebody, and I stuck with it, and it's uh, been a long time now. At what point, though, did you realize that you weren't just the average kid playing piano and then learning scales and a few songs, but knowing that, oh, I'm pretty good at this, I can make music something of a career? It wasn't until, actually, I was in grad school. I went to grad school because I didn't have anything else to do. I didn't know what to do with my life, so I decided to be a professional student. And I spent uh, one summer... Uh, well, actually two summers, but the first summer that I did this, I was teaching at a summer program for high school kids, uh-huh. and I was working with some of the teachers from my graduate program, and I played one day, and I had one of those special moments with, with the kids where... Uh, <laughs> not you, like a Banks Fulkerson moment, I hope. No, no, nothing like that, nothing like that. This was a good thing. We were, we were performing a song... And my teacher was, was coaching us, giving us instructions on how to, how to work on the song. Uh-huh. And we had one of these special moments where just something clicked when we were performing the song. And it was a different experience afterwards from before. Hmm. And I just felt everything sort of change in that instant. And then I was out to lunch with them later that day. And... Um, uh, my teacher said, and he wasn't a real effusive guy, didn't give, him, didn't give a lot of compliments. And he said to me that I did a really, really good job, and he reached over and he pat me on my back. Hmm. And it wasn't until then, and I was, what, I was probably 27 or so at the point, and it wasn't until that moment uh, that I realized I was going to spend the rest of my life doing music. Is piano your only instrument? Do you, do you play other... Uh... I don't play other instruments. I do sing some, and I conduct. Right, okay. Uh, but I don't play, like, clarinet or saxophone or, or anything Or guitar, like even. Or I mean, not piano even guitar, is your, no. Piano your... is, my, is my axe. So how... Uh, do you... It's interesting, because you're so busy, and you're so uh, busy accompanying people. Do you practice? Do you warm up? Or you don't have to, because you're, you're always practicing, because you're always playing. I pretty much just sit down and play. Um, you know, sometimes if I'm working on something for, for a performance, because I play for a lot of classes and I just do a lot of sight reading, uh, but if I'm getting ready for a performance, um, obviously things have to be at a more polished level. So I'll, I'll practice for those things, uh, but I don't do normal warm-ups and scales and etudes and things like that. I just don't have the time. 
Of course, of course. And do you, have you ever done classical piano? My uh, graduate degrees are in classical collaborative piano, it's called. What the hell is that? It used to be called accompanying. And then somebody decided that it was not a politically correct term because it makes you sound inferior to the people you're playing for hmm. or with. So now it's called collaborative piano. And uh, what the degrees were was essentially, uh, obviously working on my piano technique, but I spent most of my time coaching and playing for singers and playing chamber music. And that's what I got. Uh, I, I actually have a master's and a doctorate in that. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. You know, there's, you can, there's a doctorate in, a, in accompanying uh, collaborative piano? Uh-huh. It's called a doctorate in collaborative piano? I have a doctorate of musical arts in collaborative piano, and actually... Who the hell I, I cannot prove this yeah. beyond uh, a complete doubt, but I was the first person at my school to get a doctorate in collaborative piano, and um, and it's quite possible that ours was was the first program in the country that called it that. So I could actually be, and, and I think I am, or pretty close, the first person in the country to get a doctorate in collaborative piano. Mazel tov. Oh, my goodness. You are a pioneer. You are a trailblazer in the field. I guess so. I, uh, I, I need to put the fire out at some point, but, uh, uh, the, but, but yeah, I, I was at least first at the school. But like I said, I think we were the first in the country. My, my great, great uncle Schmolke was the first pianist to play the dark notes. I did not know this. Really? Everybody uh, before him, it was like Irving Berlin. Everybody just played in the major scale. And then he's like, oh, you know, there's these other keys up there. Let me touch them. History. Who knew? Wow. That's impressive. Thank I, you. I have to say, I'm, I'm honored to be in, in the presence of a relative. <laughs> well, so am I. Um, well, I'm relatively honored. <laughs> That's just go. comedy right there. So you have been at the University of Northern Colorado for how long? On and off for 12 years. Uh, I used to work here back when I first moved to Colorado, and then I... You went off. Then you went off. Then I went off somewhere else. I was freelancing for a long time, and now I'm I'm back. I've been back for a couple of years now, and uh, and it's working out pretty well. Are you a Colorado native? I am from uh, uh, the area of Boston, Massachusetts. Oh, my goodness. So, was there any... Was Berkeley, or were were you educated in... uh, no, uh, well, I was educated in the Boston area. I did my undergraduate degree. I have a, a bachelor's from Harvard. Good God! And I did my master's and my doctoral degrees at Boston University. Woof! My goodness. Now, now let me tell you something. You're very lucky Dave Lefkowitz is not here in the room with us right now. Because David Lefkowitz was rejected from Harvard. They would not let him in. And so there's a great deal of, of pain and envy I'm sure in his soul as he listens to this, uh, he's not listening, he's getting a bagel, but yeah. Harvard is known for making mistakes every now and then, so I'm sure they they look back on it now and they they must have an element of regret to it. Well, was Harvard so incredibly wonderful? Was it so much better than every play, than UNC, than the other play, than Boston University? Or was it, depending on the teacher, depending on the day? Depending on the teacher, depending on the day. It's, It's a college, and... You know, when you're there and you're in the middle of everything, you don't necessarily think there's anything special about it uh, because everyone else around you is doing the same thing. And it's really 
even when you graduate, if you're still in the Boston area, there's no, nothing special about it. It's only after you leave the East Coast and there are fewer of us around that it really seems to become special. Uh, one thing that happens to me here a lot is I don't go around advertising the fact I went to Harvard. You know, I don't, don't say it. Because you get your ass kicked. But all right, yeah, yeah, really. And um, so I work with a lot of uh, musical theater students, undergrads, and I'm giving them instruction or I'm helping them with a song or I'm trying to get them to do this, I'm trying to get them to do that. They don't necessarily want to do what I tell them to do. You know, they're sort of, well, who is this guy? I know more than him. And then somewhere along the line, somebody will say to them, well, you know, he went to Harvard. And then all of a sudden they start doing what I asked them to do <laughs> and treating me with some respect. That's helpful. That's yeah. good. Has, but has being from an Ivy League kind of written your ticket so that you have always been able to work? Has, has there ever been any difficulty, like getting a job in academia or anything like that? Oh, definitely, definitely. I haven't gotten every job I've applied for. What the hell? If Harvard's on the resume, that isn't an automatic, like, welcome, here's the gold card, there's the key in the men's bathroom? I think it's a plus, but it's not an automatic in. Uh, I think, you know, they see Harvard. I, I do know a couple of jobs I have gotten because they see Harvard on my resume, and they're interested in talking to me. So there are a couple of jobs I've definitely gotten, a couple of interviews I've definitely gotten because of it, but I haven't automatically gotten the job in the end. I know that uh, University of Northern Colorado has gotten uh, me a gig at Arby's. This was, uh, you know, it's janitorial, but there's room for movement. Well, and I don't want to think what sort of movement, but, but muscle talk. <laughs> thank you, thank you. Well, it's Arby's, you can probably imagine. Yes. It's a Chipotle sort of movement, if you, uh -huh. if you get my drift. So, is your favorite thing at the University of Northern Colorado teaching and accompanying the kids... Uh, playing for the shows here. What? What is the... Well, I enjoy working in, in teaching in the classroom, and um, the two things I love the most are when I get to work with the students one-on-one, -on -one, or if they're doing a duet, two-on-one, -on -one, but in, in small... Two-on-one is my favorite, but anyway, yes? I, I had a feeling you were going to say that after I went there. I, I regretted <laughs> it the second I said it. I went there, too. I'm sorry. Um, so if I'm working with small groups of students doing what, what's called coaching and helping them learn a song, learn to interpret a song, learn what's meant by the song and where their dramatic choices are and their musical choices are, I really love just being able to dig into the music with them and, and really change their experience of a song. And then the other thing I really love, which is a, a huge part of my job here, the, the other thing I, I don't get to do that much of, uh, because of how the schedule is laid out and because for classes I'm primarily a collaborative pianist, a columnist. Uh, yeah, yes. um, so I don't get much one-on-one -on -one time with the students. But when I really do get to do a lot of that is when I'm musical directing the, the departmental shows uh, every semester. And I work with the leads, obviously, and we really get to dig into the songs. But I also absolutely adore working with the choruses for the shows. Um, we've got a show going on right now, uh, tonight at 7.30 and tomorrow at 2 o'clock in the afternoon at the Langworthy Theater in Fraser Hall. Uh, we're doing uh, a show called Ragtime. That's right. We've got a cast of 70 people, Good which is vault. just astounding. 
And working with the chorus on this show was just one of the most gratifying experiences I've ever had because I, uh, the sound I've gotten out of them and the sound that they make, that they've worked so hard on, it's just, I, I listen to them on stage making this music and it's just very moving to me. I don't normally get to watch my shows. I'm normally playing in the in pit. In the pit, that's right. So I, I actually get to watch this show and to hear what they sound like. And and this may sound a little self-centered, but to know and, and to feel that I'm greatly responsible for how amazing this music sounds coming from them is, is really very moving to me and not something I get to experience an awful lot. Wow. That, that's what it's all about, I guess. I, I wouldn't know because I auditioned for Tata but uh, didn't get the role, and then I auditioned for Mama, and I didn't get that role either. And Well, we favor musical theater students. So. Yeah, yeah. That, that, yeah you probably then, wouldn't have been able to do a Friday night performance anyway. You're right. Or, or uh, there you go. So th- you made me feel so much better today on so many levels. I can't even begin to tell you. So, so let me ask you, what are your thoughts about doing Shalom, Damn It, an evening with Rabbi Sal Solomon, with Rabbi Sal Solomon? Well, I am absolutely excited to be doing a show in New York. Uh, I think it's it's going to be very exciting, and I'm hoping we get lots of people to come to the show. Working with Rabbi Saul Solomon, it's hard to say in front of Rabbi Saul Solomon. It's been it's been edifying. Um, he has many words of wisdom. I enjoy talking with him and rehearsing with him. Uh, strangely enough, I end up uh, after rehearsals with a slight case of heartburn, but but that goes away quickly. Uh, but but in general, Rabbi, I, I have to say it's been a, a wonderful experience, and and um, I think that that the show is, is is wonderful. Certainly, working on these on these songs with the lyrics you've written for them, they're hilarious. Oh, thank you so much, Tim. Uh, they're they're completely offensive, but they're hilarious. This is the and, and so I think it's got something going for it on both fronts. There, in fact, they're completely hilarious but offensive too. I like to switch that around. They're just. Uh, just it, to be it annoying. Works both ways. It's sort of the, the, the transitive property there. Oh my goodness, you are a teacher. There you go. So <laughs> it's the doctor in me coming out. Everybody, please come. See, well, I mean, if you're in Colorado, it'd be difficult. But if you're not in Colorado, you're getting on a plane. You're living in New York. And you're in the New York area, which includes Connecticut, New Jersey, Maine, parts of Detroit. Come to Shalom, damn it, an evening with Rabbi Sal Solomon playing at the Rich, Richmond Shepherd Theater, 309 East 26th Street. They're mostly matinees. So if you have an old and indigent relative who can't get out at night, you can, you can take them during the day. They'll be home before dark. It's 2 o'clock on Tuesday. Wednesday, we have one night show at 7.30. And Thursday through Saturday, also at 2 o'clock in the afternoon, I know, Shabbos, March 13th through the 17th. For more information, visit shalomdammit.com. D-A-M-M-I-T. Shalomdammit.com. Get your tickets. You can pay by credit card at brownpapertickets.com or just reserve. Please, we would love to see you at this wonderful, exciting, and deeply offensive show. Richard Shore, I want to thank you so much for being in the uh, the Hebraic neighborhood with us on this particular Saturday. 
give a give a great shalom and brochim habayim to our uh, our listeners. My pleasure, Rebbe. Thanks for having me. It's been a joy. Thank you so much. in the afternoon here at the University of Northern Colorado. You're listening to Dave's Gone By on UNC Radio. UNCRadio.com is the place, and also Channel 3 on your dorm room television sets. Dave Lefkowitz is the name, and boy, what a jam-packed show we have had. And, and it always works like this. Like, three weeks ago or two weeks ago, we had one of the best shows we ever had. We had Alice Ripley, the Tony-winning actress, from Broadway on the show. On the same program, we had Judy Collins, the legendary songstress, and we also did a bunch of other stuff. It was fantastic. And then last week, we had technical difficulties, and then our guest from Megadeth didn't call in because the timing was wrong and whatever. And there was like, you know, I was all gruff and like, always, always, when you do the best show ever, you follow it with like a little bit of a slide down the hill. But I feel like today, we, we've, we've climbed way, way back up the hill again on the wonderful guests that we've had on the show uh, today. Michael Seth Starr and Richard Shore talking to Rabbi Saul, and, of course, Eric Lefkowitz talking about the, uh, the Monkey's books. But we are not done with the program. We've got 45 minutes or so left of Dave's Gone By Amazingness. So what, what do we have to do? Well, we have our Bob Dylan segment, Bob Dylan Sooner and Later, where we play a couple of Bob Dylan songs, and this will be about the theme of Mr. Jones in honor of the late Davy Jones. We'll also go inside Broadway for a look at what's happening on and off the stages of New York, and if there's time, we'll do a little more of a Saturday segue of more fun music. But I do have to uh, do a little bit of business, do the sponsorships 
for this radio station and for my show. Letting you know that programming on UNC Radio is brought to you in part by Marquee Magazine. Live, I'm doing this off the top of my head because I forgot to get the the loose-leaf binder with it in there. I should know it by heart by now, but I don't. I know it's live for live music or something like that, but go to marqueemag.com, M-A-R-Q-U-E-E-M-A-G.com for the region's most up-to-date and most comprehensive listings of live music, marqueemag.com. I want to let you know that this particular show, Dave's Gone By, is brought to you by Hewlett Minuteman Press, the copy kings of Broadway. Since the mid-1970s, the Toron family has owned and operated Hewlett Minuteman Press right in the heart of Hewlett, Long Island, about uh, two blocks from the Hewlett train station, right across the street from the big old Lowman's clothing store. And Hewlett Minuteman Press is the place to go for all your copying, printing, binding needs. If you want to put your organization's logo on a pen, a calendar, on a mug, on a golf ball, they do that kind of stuff. And they also do your very basic, wonderful black and white and color printing and Xeroxing. And what else do they do? If you need stuff bound, like uh, just in the mail today, I finally got my master's thesis, bound volume. Um, Minuteman didn't do it. They did it here at the University of Northern Colorado because I'm 2,000 miles away. But Minuteman Press can do that kind of binding, and they also deal with wedding invitations and party invitations, all that kind of printing stuff. It's your old-fashioned but you know, newfangled printing and copying store. Minuteman Press, right in the heart of Hewlett. Call 516-569-5577, 516-569-5577. is the number of Hewlett Minuteman Press. And remember... If you tell them Dave sent you, you get 10% off any job, big or small, copying or printing, whatever it is. You tell them Dave sent you at Minuteman Press in Hewlett. Dave's Gone By is also brought to you by TotalTheater.com, which is a wonderful place to surf for, for totally free, not a penny, to go and read dozens and dozens of reviews of shows from all across the country and all over the world. All the big Broadway shows, what's happening off-Broadway, plus places like Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and Los Angeles, California, and the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. Just go surfing on TotalTheater.com. Doesn't matter how you spell theater either, R-E or E-R. Either way, go there. Plus, there are um, articles and interviews with major people in the theater. It's a wonderful site, TotalTheater.com, and Total Theater is the parent company of Performing Arts Insider, the Bible of Broadway, since 1944. This is a hard-copy journal. You actually get it in the mail, the old-fashioned way. You put it on the desk. You keep it on, you, you know, on your lap on the train, and it gives you all the little important detailed information that people need to know about what's going on on the stages of New York. The people who get this journal are booking folks for late-night talk shows or or morning network television shows. They need to know, hey, there's a a Broadway show coming in about half a year and -and so-and-so is going to be in it. How do I 
contact them so I get to interview them. Or, oh, you know, we're building a set for something and I would love to get in touch with this costume designer or this lighting designer. How do I, how do, I do that? Oh, it's all in the pages of Performing Arts Insider, telling you when shows are opening, closing, changing their casts, and how to get in touch with the designers, the directors, the press agents, the publicists, the managers, all there, page after page, plus chronological calendar listings of every show on, off, and off-off-Broadway, as well as cabaret, opera, dance, and special events. For more information about Performing Arts Insider, please go to performingartsinsider.com. Performingartsinsider.com. Also, finally, I want to give a shout-out to Jeff Goodman, my good friend and a former guest co-host of this program for a couple of years. Jeff Goodman, thank God he's doing great. He's in New York at the moment. So, if you have a party that you are planning in the tri-state area, and you want to make it look great, you want to have beautiful balloon archways or centerpieces, or if you have a theme in mind, let's say you've got a a kid's bar mitzvah coming up, and the kid is a big Yankee fan, or, or, well, I would say Colorado Rockies fan, but we are talking about the New York area. Let's say uh, the kid is a big fan of, oh, I don't know, Justin Bieber, if he's a very strange bar mitzvah boy, or whatever it is. It could be Pirates of the Caribbean. Jeff Goodman can make the party look like that with all the right designs and the cutouts and not make it look cheap either. It'll look really, really great. Plus, if you're putting together a party and you have no idea how um, to really get it together, you need a DJ, you need a florist, you need caterers, Jeff can hook you up with all the right people, too, because he's in that business. That's what he does. So give Jeff Goodman a call at Fancy Schmancy Balloons, 516-776-0600. Area code 516-776-0600. Shouldn't your party be a fancy schmancy affair? Well, it's 1220 in the afternoon, Mountain Time. You're listening to the 378th episode of Dave's Gong By. Time for our Bob Dylan Sooner and Later segment, where we play a handful of Bob Dylan tunes, because he is Bob Dylan. He is the greatest ever. And a lot of times we'll do these around a particular theme. So in honor of the sad occasion that we lost Davy Jones of the Monkees just this past week, Let's hear some Bob Dylan songs that have to do with monkeys and, of course, Mr. Jones. Oh, 
Oh, baby. 
bit my wrist I punched myself in the face with my fist I took my potatoes down to be mashed Then I made it down, down to that million dollar bash Ooh, baby, ooh-wee Ooh, baby, ooh-wee It's that million dollar bash Average common too. I'm just like him, the same as you. I'm everybody's brother and son. I ain't different than anyone. They don't use to talk to me. It's just the same as talking to you. I was shadow boxing early in the day. I figured I was ready for Cassius Clay. I said, fee, fi, fo, fum, Cassius Clay, here I come. 26, 27, 28, 29, gonna make your face look just like mine. Five, four, three, two, one, Cassius Clay, better run. 99, 100, 101, Your mom won't even recognize you. 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, gonna knock him clean right out of his spleen. I've been told the streets of heaven are lined with gold I ask you how things get much worse That the Russians happen to get up the first Wowee, pretty scary Now I'm liberal but to a degree I want everybody to be free But if you think I'll let Barry Goldwater move in next door or marry my daughter, you must think I'm crazy. I wouldn't let him do it for all the farms in Cuba. When I set my monkey on the log and ordered him to do the dog, he wagged his tail and shook his head. And he went and did the cat instead. He's a weird monkey. Very funky. I sat with my high heel sneakers on, waiting to play tennis in the noonday sun. I had my white shorts rolled up past my waist, and my wig hat was falling in my face. But they wouldn't let me on the tennis court. woman, she's so mean, she sticks my boots in the washing machine, sticks me with buckshot when I'm nude, puts bubblegum in my food, she's funny, wants my money, calls me honey. Now I got a friend who spends his life stabbing my picture with a bowie knife, Dreams of strangling me with a scarf When my name comes up he pretends to barf I got a million friends Now they are 
asked me to read a poem at the sorority sister's home. I got knocked down and my head was swimming. I wound up with the dean of women. Yippee! I'm a poet. I know it. Hope I don't blow it. I'm gonna grow my hair down to my feet so strange. So I look like a walking mountain range And I'm gonna ride into Omaha on a horse Out to the country club and the golf course Carrying the New York Times Shoot a few holes, blow their minds Now you're probably wondering by now Just what this song's all about What's probably got you baffled more is what this thing here is for. It's nothing. <laughs> It's something I learned over in England. To take chances My right hand drawing back While my left hand advances Where the current is strong And the monkey dances To the tune of a concertina Blood drying in my yellow hair As I go from shore to shore I know what it is That has drawn me to your door But whatever could it be Makes you think you've seen me before Angelina Giants 
tops explode The peaches they were sweet And the milk and honey flowed I was only following instructions When the judge set me down the road With your subpoena When you cease to exist Then who will you blame I've tried my best to love you But I cannot play this game Your best friend and my worst enemy Is one and the same Angelina Combat zone Your servants are half dead You're down to the bone Tell me tall man Where would you like to be overthrown In Jerusalem Or Argentina She was stolen from her mother When she was three days old Now her vengeance has been satisfied And her possessions have been sold He's surrounded by God's angels And she's wearing a blindfold But so are you, Angelina Take heaven by force I can see the unknown rider I can see the pale white horse In God's truth name Tell me what you want And you'll have it of course Just step into the arena Lead a path of retreat Them spiral staircases Past the tree of smoke Past the angel with four faces Begging God for mercy And weeping in unholy places Angelina
red wagon, a little red bike. I ain't no monkey, but I know what I like. I like the way you love me strong and slow. I'm taking you with me, honey, baby, when I go. One of my favorite all-time Bob Dylan songs, Buckets of Rain. Life is sad. Life is a bust. All you can do is do what you must. You do what you must do, and you do it well. Those were actually the words in my high school yearbook that I chose to accompany my picture and you know the fact that I was in the chess club. <laughs> I don't know why I still admit to that. But anyway, that concludes our Bob Dylan Sooner and Later set here on Dave's Gone By. Played a bunch of songs that had to do tangentially, very, very tangentially, with Davy Jones and the Monkees. Of course, Mr. Jones being the operative phrase there. So we heard in our Bob Dylan set, Ballad of a Thin Man, that was the live version there, followed by Million Dollar Bash, which is not the regular uh, version that we all know from the first what was it, the Bob Dylan and the band, uh, basement tapes, and then some of the bootleg stuff. This is one of the real, real basement tape bootlegs because there are two versions of Million Dollar Bash. So I decided to play the first one. And in that song, they mention, Then along came Jones, and he emptied the trash. So Jones again for Davy Jones. And then the rest of the songs were monkey references and Bob Dylan songs. So... On Million Dollar Bash, we, uh, excuse me, on um, I Shall Be Free number 10, we heard the phrase, well, I set my monkey on a log, ordered him to do the dog. He's a weird monkey, very funky, very strange song. I think he was just discovering uh, marijuana at that point, because it's not particularly funny, but uh, it's early Dylan. You, you know, you can't deny it on some basic level. Then we heard from one of the Lager Bootleg series, Angelina. And that's a song that uh, has the lyric, When the current is strong and the monkey dances. And we heard a monkey reference also in the Bob Dylan song, On the Road Again, is while I go to pet your monkey. And finally, Bob Dylan, Buckets of Rain, Little Red Wagon, Little Red Bike, I Ain't No Monkey, But I Know What I Like. I like doing this show. It's called Dave's Gone By. We're here every Saturday from 10 until 1 in the afternoon, Mountain Time, on UNC Radio, the radio station of the University of Northern Colorado. It's time for Inside Broadway, where we take a quick look at what's happening on the stages 
of New York and elsewhere. <sighs> Seems like every week when we do Inside Broadway, we have to start off with some bad news. But uh, kind of sad news from the Broadway world. Farewell to theater critic Harold, excuse me, Howard Kissel. He died, um, he was 69 years old, died of complications following a liver transplant that he had a little while ago. Of course, he was the Daily News chief theater critic for 20 years. He was one of those big, major New York critics, right up there with Frank Rich and Clive Barnes and John Simon over at New York Magazine. It was Howard Kissel. And he was, of course, certainly the most noticeable physically of all of them, because he he did have that big bird look. He had to be about six foot five or something, with a hawk nose and brillowy white hair. Kind of looked a little like a, a albino version of David Bromberg. But in the times that I had spoken to him and met him, very nice guy, very soft spoken. Wrote an excellent biography of David Merrick, the great. Broadway, who a great and very feared Broadway producer, but really also just best known for week after week being out there in the trenches reviewing theater for the New York Daily News. After he left the Daily News, because he's not hasn't been their current theater critic for a while, he was blogging a bit for Huffington Post. You can also see him. I didn't remember this, but because he has such a striking, weird look and face, he had a cameo role in Woody Allen's Stardust Memories. So I have to go back and look at that film, which I never really liked. But just to see, I'm, I'm sure he's one of those paparazzi people who's coming up to him and they light him in a certain weird way. Um, in a positive review of the musical Chicago, this is this is what Howard Kissel wrote of Bob Fosse's choreography. Many of his steps seem deliberately sinister. They made me shiver, as you do when you see things squiggling under a rock. So cool, so visceral, and so straight out there, not your critic from on high, just telling you what he thought in language that makes you feel. The late Howard Kissel bidding him farewell. Otherwise, a lot of good news in theater this week, and very happy to share that with you. First of all, Congratulations to Off-Broadway's Pearl Theatre Company. They signed a 20-year lease on 555 West 42nd Street, all the way over on 11th Avenue. That was where the Signature Theatre used to be. They got themselves a big, huge, major space. Now uh, the Pearl is going to take over their old space. Very cool, a little bit out of the way, but a very nice place to do shows, and they're going to start their new season in the fall. J.R. Sullivan, the artistic director of the Pearl Theater, says that they're starting a $3 million capital campaign to really beef the place up. And I've got to say, you know, all power to the Pearl Theater Company. I was watching them for years when they were in this little space, I think where, where Irish Rep had been, or, or a place like it over on... on 22nd Street, and they would do pretty good work. It was a little up and down. It was, it was something almost of a repertory company. And then they started to get better and moved up in the world. And then I think the past few years they've been using Man Manhattan Theater Club's second stage space over at City Center. And, is, you know, you know how it is. The roundabout was like this, too. You know, incrementally, they're doing and they're doing, and somehow they're getting a little better and getting more audiences and more money and a little more artistic. Um, certainly, Irish repertory has vaunted, or vaulted, I should say, 
over where it was in the first few years that I was seeing what they were doing. So, again, hearty congrats to the Pearl Theater. Everybody go out there and see their shows in the fall at that brand new space. Well, the musical Carrie is back. Much to everybody's shock. Maybe they'll do Moose Murders too one day. Now, if you know, Carrie was, uh, I guess about 20 years ago, a Broadway musical opened based on the Brian De Palma film, the Stephen King story about this girl who is abused by her crazy, crazy crazy-ass mom and made fun of by all her classmates, but this girl has problems of her own and these weird telekinetic powers that she ultimately uses to exact revenge on all these horrible people in her life. And so it could make a really great gothic musical. They tried 20 years ago. It was by the people who created fame, Christopher Gore and and, and those folks. And um, it was one of Broadway's most legendary musical flops. In fact, Ken Mandelbaum wrote a book about Broadway flops, and he titled it Not Since Carrie, referring to that original version of Carrie. But there were people who said that Carrie could have worked. Carrie was a workable gothic musical with some great music in it, wonderful parts for actresses, a thrilling, creepy gothic story. reason it didn't work is it was overwhelmed by the staging. There was too much blood, too much effects, too much running around screaming, whatever it was. And so if they just toned it down a notch and went back to the story and went back to the characters and the chills, there was a gem of a musical waiting to get out. And so over at Manhattan Class Company, they've decided to give it a shot. And they went back and they restaged a brand new carry. I mean, with new songs and a revised book and, and really tried to do it right, keep in the big scenes and the chills, but also scale back on the, the gory stuff and the blood. Well, alas, the reviews were not probably what they were expecting. They're certainly better than the reviews for the original Carrie, but they were still middling and middle of the road. It it doesn't sound like that they've resuscitated a lost classic. It just sounds like they took a monster flop, turned it into something that's almost passable, almost decent, but just not really, just not really quite good enough. The New York Times' Ben Brantley liked Marin uh, Maisie, I believe is the way she pronounces it. He likes her performance as the mother very, very much. But he says, quote, Still, it's hard to imagine this defanged Carrie ever raising your blood pressure or even making your flesh crawl. Mark Kennedy of the Associated Press compared this version to the version 20 years ago and said, The result may be better, but it's nowhere near good. Some lovely music is marred by a patronizing, out-of-touch book, an overwrought tone, and characters that seem as light and insubstantial as an after-school special. Ay ay ay. Entertainment Weekly said, What's clear in watching this underwhelming act of theatrical resuscitation is that Carrie is not a great lost musical. Gore's pop rock score is pleasant, but not particularly memorable, and Dean Pitchford's lyrics are a mumble-mouthed jumble. Ow. Not all the reviews were that negative, and not all the material in those particular reviews was so negative. But uh, I, I don't see this one moving to Broadway or having a huge commercial life beyond this revival. They did it. They showed that I guess it could be done in a different way. But... Hey, not everything always works out. And finally, on Inside Broadway, potentially the most exciting news of all, 
Stephen Sondheim and playwright David Ives are collaborating on a musical. Is that amazing or what? David Ives, of course, the author of All in the Timing, and he's got Venus and Fur up on Broadway now. Sondheim, well, <laughs> the composer of West Side Story, and a funny thing happened on the way to the Forum, and Company, and uh, Gypsy, and Sunday in the Park with George, and Swinging, I mean, Sondheim, okay, with this, the brilliant David Ives working together, and in interviews, Stephen Sondheim said that it came about because he was watching or reading, probably watching, a David Ives play. And there was a moment in the play that sparked this idea in him that he couldn't let go of. And so he contacted Ives, and they're working together. I think they said that they're about a half hour into the show now. Sondheim's 81 years old, God willing, he still has time, you know, to put together another show because people were kind of thinking... Well, his last one, Wise Guys, or Bounce, was going to be the last hurrah for him. Not that he's been terribly sick, thank God, or anything else. He's just been busy with other things, and Wise Guys, quote or, or uh, FKA Bounce, was such a hard road for everybody involved. It, it was you know, workshopped and workshopped to death, and it just never, the reviews didn't come through, and finally they did it at the public theater, and that got some good reviews, but it just, it, it just didn't happen, but it took so long. You know, in the old days, Rogers and Hart could get together, sit down, write some songs, cobble together a show, and within six months, the show was on Broadway and running. Now, a Stephen Sondheim takes three, four years just to go, get a show out of development hell. I don't understand it. But anyway, hopefully this one will have a quick route, whatever it is that they're working on. And Sondheim said uh, jokingly that, you know, for the past four years, he's also been working on two books. He did the wonderful Finishing the Hat, where he took all these lyrics of his and explained the mistakes that he felt he made and why something really works or why something could have been better. I mean, it's a miracle of a book and a wonder that he, he took the time to put it out. And I think he also did a, a biography book as well. I'm forgetting the title. So he spent the past four years working on those, but not working on a new musical. And he said that uh, when he sits down at the piano now, he has trouble finding middle C. I find that really hard to believe, but I'm... I'm in marvelous shock to know that he's back in the trenches working with David Ives, and maybe in two, three years we will see a new Stephen Sondheim musical. Ah, I'm I'm almost goosebumpy thinking about it. That's how strange I am. It is 12.58 in the afternoon here at the University of Northern Colorado. You have been listening to Dave's Gone By, my show, which is here every Saturday from 10 until 1. I've got some thank yous to do Thank you very, very much to Eric Lefkowitz. And everybody, go check out his book, Monkey Business. He's self-published the revised edition. The older edition, Monkey's Tale, is probably still out there in used bookstores. But if you want to go uh, to Amazon or other places and get Monkey Business to read about Davy Jones and the monkeys, um, Eric Lefkowitz is the author, L-E-F-C-O-W-I-T-Z is the way he spells his name, no relation. And then, thank you so much to uh, Wes Seeley of Hal Leonard Books for setting us up with Michael Seth Starr, the author of Black and Blue, The Red Fox Story. Really, really good book. I wish I had the time to read more of it, because it's a fascinating story, and really told well and in-depth 
by Michael Seth Starr. And also he's got these other books that you can find about Raymond Burr and Joey Bishop and who else? And, and Bobby Darren, he wrote a biography of. Um, we didn't even get a chance to ask him about any of those. I wanted to. But there was so much to tell about Red Fox that I, I just had to keep him going on that. So read all his books. Michael, Seth, Star, S-T-A-R-R. And, of course, wishing him luck on the Ringo Star book that he will be doing in the next two or three years ahead. Thank you so much to uh, Rabbi Saul Solomon for stopping in with Richard Shore, the musical director for his one-man, two-person show happening off-off-Broadway at the Richmond Shepherd Theater March 13th through the 17th. It's just, my gosh, it's like a week and a half away. Tuesday at... Two Wednesday at 7.30, Thursday through Saturday at 2 o'clock in the afternoon, March 13th through the 17th. Tickets are available at brownpapertickets.com. Brownpapertickets.com. Tickets are only $18, $15 for students and seniors. For more information, go to shalomdammit.com. And that's dammit, D-A-M-M-I-T, shalomdammit.com. We would love to see you in the audience at Shalom Damag. It's um, a developmental staging. They're hoping to get some real backer producer money to put that off-Broadway in, in a major way or bring it around the country, bring it back to Colorado. It was done at the Norton Theater at UNC back in November. Let's get it to Denver. Let's get it to other places. So visit ShalomDammit.com and get thee to Shalom Damit an evening with Rabbi Saul Solomon in Min- in mid-March at the Richmond Shepherd Theater. Thank you to Rabbi Saul and to Richard Shore. Also, thank you so much to Sam Wood, the general manager of UNC Radio, and to my lovely wife, Joyce Weil, who is having, you know, I'm totally crazed. I, I started the show by mentioning that I'm in the middle of dealing with helping Rabbi Saul and his show and get that to New York. I'm also taking a, a class. I was also taking guitar lessons. I'm trying to deal with a dog that needs surgery. I mean, it's all this stuff going on. And my wife is going with even more stuff than I am. She's even more crazy and busy and backed up. So all my love to her and uh, for getting her through these next few really, really crazy weeks. Well, before we go, I do also want to say hi to some friends of the neighborhood, people who have appeared on the program at some point I consider friends of the neighborhood. I want to let you know that uh, Linda Lavin will be honored by the Vineyard Theater of New York on March 12, 2012, about a week or so away. She'll be there with Judy Kuhn, Jill Eikenberry, Hope Davis, Deborah Messing. It's at the Hudson Theater on West 44th Street, March 12th. Congratulations to Linda Lavin, who was on this program a couple of months ago. Also, Linda Eder is going to be at Feinstein's doing Songbirds, her show dedicated to such singers as Eva Cassidy, Judy Garland, Barbara Streisand, Edda James, and more. Linda Eder, March 13th through the 17th, same dates that um, they're doing Shalom Dammit in New York. Catch her at Feinstein's. And then on March 19th, Tova Feldshaw will be emceeing the Broadway beauty pageant. Yay, Tova, our guest in the neighborhood in 2008. And I want to let you know that Aaron Berg, the comedian and monologist 
is doing his show, The Underbelly Diaries, at Theater Row Studio Theater, March 22nd through April 7th. Remember, he was here a few uh, months ago when his show was in the Fringe Festival in New York? This is what happened. Somebody liked it, and now they're bringing it for a couple of weeks to really put it up off-Broadway in New York, get it there, and I'm sure he'll end up taking it around the country for the next two or three years. Aaron Berg, The Underbelly Diary, and remember, this is the guy who is, you know, the, the chronic weightlifter, and also he was a Chippendale-style dancer in strip clubs where women go. Wild stories, wild tales to tell. Should be a great show to go see, March 22nd through April 7th off-Broadway. Also want to remind you that Carrie Hoffman, still doing My Sinatra at Sophia's on West 46th Street. Christine Petty is in Musical and Miss Abigail's Guide to Dating, Mating, and Marriage. That is also at Sophia's. Everybody subscribe to drdemento.com and everybody read Studies in Crap, the hilarious weekly column by Alan Scherstuhl in the San Francisco Weekly. It's a, I just read another one a couple of days ago. Absolutely hysterical stuff. Just um, it, it, What he does is he finds kitsch and crap like old coloring books and um, you know, non-PC biographies and self-help manuals and sex manuals and how to be better Christian things and, and just the worst sci-fi books ever written, the, the kitschiest, dumbest, unintentionally funniest crap. And he makes fun of it in a perfect, perfect way. Alan Scherstuhl studies in crap. Go check out that column at San Francisco Weekly. Well, it just uh, remains for me to thank all of you for joining us in the neighborhood. It's been um, an absolute delight. I wish we had more time because I just played more music and more... I really should play more monkeys, shouldn't I? Let's see, what, what shall we go out with on this episode of the show? Oh, ooh, before I forget, we will not be here next week, nor the week after. It'll be spring break time, and I'll be over in New York helping get Shalom Dammit up at the Richmond Shepherd Theater. So no shows for the next two weeks. But then we come back on March 24th with Steve Solomon, the uh, also a comedian and monologist who's doing... My mother's Italian, my father's Jewish, and I'm in therapy. He brought that off-Broadway a couple of years ago. He's doing it in Brooklyn, I believe, the week that we will be back. So we'll be talking to Steve Solomon about his show, My Mother's Italian, My Father's Jewish, and I'm in therapy, here on Dave's Gone By on March 24th. So do tune in and don't miss that. Let's how I know what we'll play. Let's um, go out here with another monkey song, a, a kind of a lesser-known one, because it's from one of the later album incarnations of the Monkees. I think Mike Nesmith was already out of the band at that point, but I think it's still before Jones, Boyce, and Hart, that incarnation. Anyway, the interesting thing about this is that, well, the guitar has a very distinctively fuzzy and harsh sound, and the, the way the guitar runs are played, are, could only be one person. And it turns out to be Neil Young, go figure, early Neil Young, on this monkey's track. It's called You and I. And so, I hope you and I will see each other in New York at the Rabbi's Play, or certainly I hope you and I will hear each other in two and a half weeks. Well, you know, 
three Saturdays from now on UNC Radio. Go to davesgoneby.com to keep tabs on the show and for archives of the program. Email me, davesgoneby at aol.com for your thoughts and suggestions and to get on our mailing list. Visit the rabbi, Rabbi Sal Solomon, at Twitter so you can get his tweets. Go to our MySpace page for our playlist, myspace.com, and then search for Dave's Gone By. All these ways of bringing together... Oh, this is going to be grammatically incorrect, but I'll do it for the sake of the song and for the late Davy Jones. This is a tune called You and I and Gone By. (laughs) 